clubhouse. Is there any word on the boy? No, not yet. Where's your sense of urgency? What would you have me do? How about we go back to the lower ninth with more men and we go get some goddamn answers? It's not a real plan, son. It's barely even an idea. Dad, I think before you speak. Think before you act. Don't yell at him. He's trying to protect this family. Look where I got him. Oh, so we do nothing. He was nearly killed. Doesn't that act demand retaliation? That act was retaliation. Patience is not in action. And violence is not a demonstration of strength. Welcome to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after-show podcast for Showtime series, Your Honor. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing the season two premiere of Your Honor called Part 11. They're keeping the same numbering scheme as they had in season one. Tonight's episode was written by Joey Hartstone and was directed by Peter Solitz. Peter will be back directing parts 11 and 12, as well as, uh, well, directing this episode 11, uh, next week's part 12, and then he'll be back later in the season to direct parts 15 and 16. Joey has previously written part 7 from season 1, and is listed as a writer on all 10 episodes of the season. He's also an executive producer of the show this season. So we got some, we got some, uh, some <laughs> frequent voices coming to join the show in the, uh, behind the scenes. I like when there's continuity between our creatives. That makes me happy. Just a community note, please join us on Facebook in the Showtime Your Honor TV series fan group to discuss all things Your Honor with other fans. It's it's lively. There's lots of people with lots of questions. And in a, in a show like this, it's easy to miss some of those little tiny details. Lots so it's of fun details. To discuss. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. been two years since we last got to see the Desiados and Baxters and everyone. So there's also a lot of what happened back in season one kind of discussion. Yeah. It's a great it's a great community to just kind of get caught up with a, a brain trust of uh, people kind of chiming in. And Caroline and I are the admins of the group as well as running this podcast. So yeah, we're, we're there as a resource also. Yes, absolutely. And also a reminder that we assume you've watched this episode. So please uh, go ahead and go watch it if you haven't and come on back and we will uh, discuss with you our highs and lows, our question marks, but this will not be a recap show. Uh, let's start with some preliminaries before we really get into the meat and marrow of this episode. Uh, we're back like I said, after two years, season one ran from the end of 2020 into the beginning of 2021. So we're, we're two years back. And I think somewhat unexpectedly, you and I covered season one in the podcast. It was one of uh, Pod Club House's first podcast, really. We were just in our first year, uh, finishing our first year when Your Honor started. When season one ended, I went back to check my notes uh, to make sure when season one ended, there was no season two. It didn't come along until after the season ran. Are you surprised we're here? I am. But also, it was a, such a great story that seemed to 
have such a great beginning, middle and end that I wasn't needing to move on from where we were. You know, I, I think that it was such a, a impactful finale. I mean, it kind of blew everyone away what, what the what the events were for those of you who haven't watched yet. So I, I was not expecting it, but I was really excited about it because this was a story that I thought was God, it had so many questions at the end of season one that still were really like ripe for like actually digging into, you know, like me and you were like, I would love to know more about the background of Robin and like what was going on with her. And I know we have a series of questions that we're going to try to kind of pick through season two and see if they're starting to answer some of our season one questions. What, what about you? I mean, were you like, what the hell season two? Wait, you know, I have to tell you one thing before you answer that. Sure. I do have to say that in going back and doing rewatch of season one, it was really wild to see the moment that COVID hit and to see them have to switch over and start wearing masks in the show and having to like have a lot less people in the courtroom and stuff like that. Like it was really interesting to hear, you know, our characters say things like, you know, we need to social distance and, you know, we need to make sure we're doing like it was really kind of like. I don't know, like living in real life, we're not exactly saying those things anymore. And so it was funny. It was like a little time machine to like go back and 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 revisit how that felt at the beginning. I mean, coming out in the it was December of 2020, I remember we spoke to Hunter Duhan, who played Adam Desiato uh, back in season one. And one of the things we talked about with him was shooting the show while COVID was beginning. And mm-hmm. the way it affected production. And this is one of the first shows to really come out after COVID had hit, really, and had taken hold. And Yeah, it like happened in the middle of the show. Right. So it was like, so like they had to pivot during production. And it, I forgot about that until the rewatch. And then it was like, oh, my gosh, yeah, that's right. Oh, gosh, you know, like they're starting to we're starting to wear masks. And not everybody, but some people like it was it was that that little creepy feeling of like it's coming. But these people on the screen don't even know what's going to happen, you know? Right. And I. And a mobster son like trial, you know, in any other TV show, that would be a packed courtroom of people to get to to watch and journalists, if nothing else, filling the gallery and stuff. And, you know, it's an empty courtroom almost the entire time. And fascinating how they did such a good job of actually weaving that into the story because it was really important that there really wasn't the transparency anymore and that there was so much, you know, less scrutiny on that trial. They made it work for the story that there was no one in there, which is great and like amazing writing. Right, because the decisions that Michael's making and and I mean, it was stuff that was making Nancy the, you know, cop uh, Nancy, you know, cock her head at, at some of his choices. And uh, but if journalists were there, you know, that would have gotten a lot more scrutiny on, you know, what is Judge Desiato doing in this case? He seems to, mm-hmm. you know, be favoring the defendant or going out of his way to make things smoother or someone would have picked it apart. So narratively, it did work better that the courtroom did get to Bandy. There, He does say a line as he's going back to his chambers towards the end of the series while Carlo's uh, case going on. He, he says, you know, keep your social dis- distancing people. He wanted to go talk to Joey and he only allowed his bailiff to come back with them with the reasoning of social distancing. And I was like, that works so perfectly, you know, like, like, again, bravo to a show who had to be like right on the front line of like, how do we deal with this production wise and story wise? How are we going to explain an empty courtroom? Like good on them for figuring this out. 
on your original question of season two, am I surprised? I am surprised it was back. It had a very limited series. I, in in my notes, even for the show, in the opening that you read just now, where you referred to it as the Showtime series, Your Honor, that was always the Showtime limited series, Your Honor. That was always how it was being presented. And we always try and keep the formal verbiage that the networks themselves use. And they were calling it the Showtime's limited series, Your Honor. And I had to delete the word limited because now we're going to have two seasons of it. Now, the official word is so far is that this will not go beyond season two, but I think that's kind of what they said at the end of season one. So we got (laughs) to see how it plays out. Exactly. And and watching this episode and thinking back to season one, I I will say that I did miss uh, Hunter in the show. I missed Adam. I, I liked the character. I liked Hunter, how he portrayed him. I was happy we got to know him a little bit when we interviewed him, but I am happy that you get go see him over, kicking ass over on Wednesday on Netflix. Yeah. So he's uh, he's having a fine career uh, in a mega hit show right now. So happy for Hunter Duhan. Absolutely. I like to find the themes of the episode and just how it kind of ties to the show. I feel like this episode one was very much about catching us up and telling us where everyone is and what's been going on in the indeterminate amount of time that has passed since the end of season one uh you know season uh in se- since season one i think season one we looking at our notes from then we spent a lot of time talking about karma so much of the show was about the karmic scales and what was right and what was wrong and what's justified to protect your family when season one ended a lot of our discussion was are the karmic scales righted now is eugene's accidental shooting and killing of adam does that right the karmic scales the guy who kills Rocco is dead himself harsh as it may be but was the world righted did it end on a note where as best as can be explained karma kind of was restored or 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 justice dealt out accidental justice maybe we also talked about whether or not adam dying removes any real tension from the show because Jimmy doesn't have Adam to hold over Michael's head now. Well, the show seems to have avoided that by introducing this whole plot line that Michael ended up going to jail in the in the in the interim. Now that we have season two, I think there's a lot of places they can go. I think we have a long list of questions from season one that they could explore in season two. And season two seems to be opening up a whole new kind of can of worms for us to examine. I, I wanted to ask you, because I think a lot of fans are going to have a issue with this. I had a little bit of an issue with it, but more from a technical standpoint. But I'm curious, were you happy with how this season premiere told the story? The mix of flashbacks picking right up from when Eugene runs out of the restaurant, but also present time slash prison time scenes, where we're sometime in the future as denoted by that amazing prison beard that uh, Michael Desiato (laughs) is sporting. Did that work for you? Did you find it confusing? Would you have preferred more time stamps on the bottom of the screen or, or some or something else well for me it, it was it was okay i mean i could pick up from simple things like hair length or beard length um you know getting to see fia and with her longer hair and things like that where i could put together you know where we were but you and i basically watch tv for a living so i think that if i was sitting there doing laundry or if i was chasing after kids or making dinner and i was having one eye on the screen i think it would be pretty confusing for a casual viewer on that part i kind of wish that they did flash up a one year later 
later or something like that. Just to just to like definitively remind uh, people like, okay, this was then and this is now. But it didn't have to be like hit you over the head with it because I think this is a smart show and it attracts a smart audience. So given that most of these people are going to be really being able to track it. I hope it was a little difficult at first until we really got more into the Rosie Perez character and understanding what was going on with Michael to understand why we were even here and how long this could have been. That was the part that kind of gave me like enough to go on. Yeah, I agree with you. I think this is the show that demands you watch it. It's not a show you really can be on your phone while it's playing in the background or or cooking or doing your, you know, folding your laundry. You really have to watch the show and pay attention to it. It's one of those shows that requires its viewers to pay attention to it, which is not for everyone. It's TV not for everyone. I, it's TV that I love. I, I like a show that rewards me for paying attention, and I think this is one of those kinds of shows. I like the narrative. I like the switching back and forth. I thought it kept it interesting. I thought it raised questions i think the show could have easily spoon fed the timestamps for you but by being vague and just implying passage of time it allows you to think about it it allows you to discuss what's going on it's one of the beauties of not having a binge show but a show that you have to wait a week in between so you can go on the facebook group you can go on reddit and you can really hash out what is actually happening or what has happened what did you see I will say the one thing I wish they would have done was been a little more interim with his prison beard because we know he ends up being present and we'll, we'll talk about how we're arriving at this, but he, the passage of time from the end of season one to where the very end of this episode is, is somewhere between nine and like say, 12 months, somewhere between nine months at least, because there's a baby now, and a year, because that baby looks, I think you'd probably agree, what, two, three, four months old? Three, three yeah. months, yeah. So, so we're, we're somewhere probably around a year. I'm saying a year, yeah. That, that makes sense to me. And when she goes to prison, she holds up those stack of letters. I freeze-framed it, and I counted at least seven distinct letters, maybe eight, and she says she has been writing him monthly. We know when she's writing, when she goes to see the baby, when the baby interrupts her cooing, she's writing what sounds like a final letter to him in prison. There, there's at least nine months, probably 12. I think 12 sounds about right. We're, and there's something, there's something very pleasing about a year passage, right? It's a very even number. Right. Yeah. And, and I would say that it makes sense to me that there would have been like a trial and stuff like that. And so the, the eight, nine letters would make sense to me because you'd need a couple months to get them into prison. Right. So that's just like part of the process. So that it all made sense to me. I, I don't think it was so confusing. But for anyone who was this podcast is saying it's been roughly a year. That's our official stance as the yes. unofficial official podcast of the show, because <laughs> I don't think there's any other podcast that is as, as a dedicated after show podcast as we are. <laughs> so uh, without getting the creators on the line, uh, we're saying a year. Let's start in the flashbacks, because as far as discussing the show, the show presented it cutting back and forth. But I don't think we have to talk about it that way. I think I think we could be a little more linearly as we talk about the different players and get reintroduced to them. If there is an episode theme, Caroline, I would say the episode theme is the pros and cons of being impulsive versus acting with patience and deliberately. Also is a thing from season one. The decisions that were done deliberately worked out much better for our characters, all of our characters, versus the ones that were done out of haste or impulsively. Big Mo represents this idea of young men acting impulsive 
nothing good can come from that. Let's uh, let's listen to our first clip of the episode. This is from Big Mo talking to Jimmy on the phone, and uh, we'll get into the story. If someone were to come around looking for trouble, I should assume you sent them, yeah? I got your son. Is that so? Mm. But like I said before, young men are so impulsive. You tread very carefully right now. Oh, if I wanted to kill him, he'd be dead. But he came to my house uninvited, swinging around his little dick. But given our situation, I'm willing to overlook all that to avoid a war that neither of us need. And in case I didn't make it clear, uh, this is a courtesy call. You handle your boy. I'll handle mine. Take away from this. Big Mo is a businesswoman, and she's trying to talk to Jimmy as a businessman and does not want to go to war over over the attempted and failed hit on Carlo and and Eugene, right? Young men are impulsive, put together with, you know, you handle your boy, I'll handle mine. She gives Carlo back to the Baxter. She doesn't take the retribution, which you know there's plenty of people in desire. Clearly, there are plenty of people in the Baxter family that just want bloodshed. But this is a businesswoman here, and she's got her mind, you know, right. Shively has a whole life of raising up young men, really, and teaching them to be adults who have some sense of, you know, uh, I guess I just want to say survival, right? Like some like self-survival skills, right? Because there's so many of these love the you know little man eugene feelings that just are like yeah they're just gonna run the streets but she wants them to be an organized run the streets situation it's a business right if you act with just your little dick swinging if you just act with your gun out all the time bad things happen you gotta have street you gotta have business smarts even on the streets I appreciated when Jimmy uh, has this attitude of like, he wants a plan. You know, even he, he sees the same exact thing as Big Mo, which is we're not just going to go running down the lower ninth, you know, scattering, causing trouble. Like that's not going to do anything. We actually need not only just like, you know, a a strategy right now, but also like, what are we after? What good comes of, you know, let's go chase down Eugene. Okay, now let's kill Carlo. Okay, now like this is just this is like busy work for two large entities who have like real gains that they could be making. They don't want to be dealing with this chicken shit kind of stuff. You know, like this is just nonsense. Right. And I mean, the harsh side of this is that she is willing to kill Eugene in order to keep war from breaking out. As much as she probably seemed to like him in season one, as much as she is sympathetic to what happened to the Jones family, earners for Desire, loyal members of Desire. I mean, think about what Covey went through for Desire that literally ended in his death. She's willing to sacrifice Eugene when she says there's only one way she says to little Mo when Eugene is in the container after she talks to him and Eugene non-repentant you know fuck your long game and 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 all that kind of stuff and you know she she says to him you so concerned about what the Baxters are going to do to you and what the cops are going to do you you never thought to think about what Big Mo was going to do if I found you first and she's saying to him and then she says to little Mo there's only one way this ends that one way is not him getting on a bus one way is Eugene with a bullet in his head at their, at, for sure, them doing it, 
But Eugene is supposed to be dead in this episode to keep the peace. That's what she's willing to go through business-wise. You know, it, it's the it's the right call. There has to be retaliation for what he tried to do. But there has to be a price paid for what he tried to do. But one young man's death prevents a whole war in the Lower Ninth and in New Orleans, which affects the business end of it. Yes, I definitely felt that as shocking as things were between, say, what Desire was willing to do versus like what the Baxters were willing to do, blowing up Kofi's house, you know, or or beating Kofi to death in the in the cell. Th- those things were so shocking. However, I've got to say one of the more shocking things was little Mo's compassion mm. towards Lil Man. There were so many moments in season one in, in my own rewatch where I thought at any point in time, this guy could really get sadistic on Little Man. You know, when they're like watching cartoons and talking stuff like this guy could have like turned and like choked him out or done something just friggin' weird because you kind of have that vibe like that is like, I don't know what this guy, if he's all good or what, you know, like, is he really going to watch after this little kid? But he did. I mean, he got him all the way that bus, you know, gave him the money, everything like I, a at, big wad of cash, not a little wad of cash. That's a big wad of cash. And it had that whole tension, though, of like at any point in time, you felt like he could have been like psych, you know, and like driven away or done whatever, or not given the money or 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 just kicked him out of the car. But he consistently has compassion for the kid. And it's funny how how that can be more shocking, the compassion, the kindness, than actually like the torture or the cruelty, which there certainly is plenty of in these episodes. I think that's a huge risk that Lil Mo takes in that whole scene. Not, the water oh, catch, so huge. Because it'd be, not that he lets Eugene go, which does take a, a man of courage and gets it to the bus. And he's relying on Eugene to take his advice and stay gone, little man. Because if he does reappear, that's bad for Lil Mo, especially since Eugene is now officially dead in everyone's eyes. But the fact that he lies to Big Mo about it, he doesn't take her into his confidence. He says, you know, he got away. Now, she's probably interpreting that as... As he let him go because she says, I'll deal with you later. Yeah, because she kind of rolls her eyes like, mm. <laughs> like, yeah, total Marge Simpson. <laughs> right, exactly. Mommy. exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, but but that's a huge risk, though. And you have to wonder, are there going to be repercussions in at least his standing with Big Mo in desire? Now, I do want to say that one of the things that that has come up is that there there has been several years that have passed between these seasons. So especially the kids like Eugene have grown older and they look older in the in these episodes. But I would like to submit the idea that that actually very much serves the story because you know what? Eugene went from a little boy to a man the moment he shot Adam. And so it's kind of fascinating visually to see him look years older on the bus because it is years later. But within the story, it's the same night, you know, or a couple nights later, whatever you want to say, in that he like has aged internally by everything that has happened, his actions. I think that that's actually like a cool, unintentional effect of having such a large span between the two seasons. I, I agree. It's a cool effect. I mean, think about how presidents age in just a few years, right? Yes. The way they go from looking young and vibrant to old and gray and hunched. <laughs> you know, little, little man got that same kind of Beat treatment. On. Yes. In, in the wad of cash, Lil Mo makes a, a point of saying there's an address in there. I gotta wonder about that. Where is that address? Where is he actually sending him to? The big question mark is, of course, this also feels unresolved. I feel like we haven't seen the last of Eugene. I don't think he's going to stay gone, little man. So something about that address and the fact that he feels like he has to return. I don't know why. It just feels undone to me, especially with the fact of how 
well, Big Mo goes and, and pivots. She covers it up. She works out a deal with Rudy and with Charlie there. Like, you just need a body. You just need a closed case. You don't actually yeah. need... I can say Eugene is gone. You just need a body that that you could say is Eugene. And here's his phone. Smart. I mean, she's a, she's a businesswoman. She's, she's so good. She's, she's problem so good. solving. As a problem solver yourself, I knew. I was watching this thing. I was like, Caroline would appreciate all of this. I would like to be Big Mo. That, that's okay by me. Yeah, I think she's amazing. I, I think that she is smart. Smart and she she knows when to go like just so far and and she also knows when to hold back and have like extreme restraint which is of course our opposite day to our young men are impulsive like and big mo's are have restraint as do honestly jimmy baxter i mean it's really his wife gina who is the nudge for you know exploding houses <laughs> yeah well let, let's before we because we're getting to the baxters but let's talk about gina gina's psychopathic offspring carlo because one of the things that big mo does so well in addition to sucking her teeth which i gotta say is a yes. whole vibe she does yes. a lot of emoting and a lot of acting with just a that she does and she does it all the time <laughs> but she she doesn't abuse it she does it at just the right moments all the time but we gotta play this cut where she's talking to carlo and i think she she knows that she's going to not kill this kid as much as she wants to, but she definitely wants to put some fear into him. And it takes a while for it to take, but let's play this cut. Could one, cause it contains my favorite line of maybe any episode of any television series ever, but because I think it, it's finally how she finally gets Carlo to be a little bit of fear that maybe he's not going to survive the night. Daddy audacity to roll up on the house after the shit your daddy pulled. Tell me one thing. He don't know that you're here now. Do he? If anything happens to me. If it was a fifth, we'd all be fucking drunk. Do you know what my family will do to you? I shouldn't matter to you now. You'd be long gone by then. Let's take a moment to celebrate Big Mo here, because this line... Man, I feel like this is this is a line that everyone can use in their life in a thousand different ways. Let's just let's just hear it isolated one more time. If if was a fifth, we'd all be fucking drunk. Amen. If if was a fifth, we'd all be fucking drunk. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a great line that is it really is. versatile. It's the kind of thing you'd want to say to a kid, right? In like an argument, because they're like, they do they do those kind of sounds, mm-hmm. like but 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 if 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 like that kind of stuff. You want to say it to them, but at the same time, I want to think a fifth goes right over a kid's head. I want to hope. <laughs> Yes. But but it's good. <laughs> yeah, I feel like a few more years, that's definitely be a line that um, that Thomas is going to hear from me. It's, a, it's some conversation <laughs> as he's in college. Be like, like motherfucker, if, if it was a fifth, we'd all be fucking drunk. Stop it with your ifs. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely hear that. But I but but the point is, she when she goes on to say, like, it don't matter what your family's going to do to you. It, that's not your concern anymore. I, you can almost feel the shit going into his pants because that's the first time he really has a look of fear on his face. He's like, man, I, I messed up here because, <laughs> you know, is Carlo just is he really just bloodlusty or is he just dumb? 
I feel like he's dumb. I mean, I really do. I really think that he's just one of those guys who just, he's got that look on his face, very caveman-y. The way that they described him and, you know, if the company you keep, Joey was never a, a very smart dude. He just seems like the one that Jimmy shakes his head about, you know, like Carlo's their first pancake. It just didn't turn out. Very first pancake-y. Uh, <laughs> well, let's get, it, let's get into them, though, because I think this episode, we saw this plenty in season one, Gina is the real bloodlusty, violent one, right? She's the one whose violence and Carlo as her direct bloodline is, are they the ones who are always attack first, hit first, violence first, blow up the entire Jones's house first. Jimmy almost always wants to go the strategy route. He wants to go with the what is smarter, what is the better strategy for us, our family, and our business. Gina and Carlo, when she comes up to him, when he's punching a body bag and like wraps herself around him, and he asks about Fia, and then I didn't pull the clip because it was almost a little too gross, the the weird touching and all that. But she says, you know, what, you know, you're so concerned. Why are you punching a fucking body bag instead of looking for him? Like she's saying, go, she's releasing a bloodhound. Yeah, I mean, in the, in the whole like devil or angel on your shoulder, everyone wants to look to Jimmy. And the reality is Gina. Gina is the one you need to be looking at. She is the one who comes up with these ideas that are so much more diabolical and nasty than half the shit that Jimmy actually does. I mean, he thinks stuff, he says stuff, but but he shows restraint. Gina's pushy, pushing, pushing. No restraint. Always violence. Let's play this, let's play this next clip because this relates to the impulsive theme right this is this question of patience versus violence which relates to impulsive behavior versus taking a uh, taking a beat and thinking it through is there any word on the boy no not yet where's your sense of urgency what would you have me do how about we go back to the lower ninth with more men and we go get some goddamn answers it's not a real plan son it's barely even an idea that i think before you speak think before you act. Don't yell at him. He's trying to protect this family. Look where I got him. Oh, so we do nothing. He was nearly killed. Doesn't that act demand retaliation? That act was retaliation. Patience is not in action. And violence is not a demonstration of strength. They're so far apart, Gina and Carlo, and then Jimmy and then Fia under her as the surviving members of the Baxter family. The question is, how long will Jimmy actually have control of his family if he has control of his family even now? And, and when I say family, I mean the Baxter criminal organization, not his direct family. It feels like Gina is making a power play, not only for bloodlust vengeance, but within the family the organization family also uh, what was your vibe there what, what's your takeaway with that clip first of all i found the line it's not a plan it's barely even an idea that cracked me up so much because he's so kind of quiet when he says it and just steady that it it hits just perfectly because the rest of the mood of the room is so just like anxious like little dogs barking like and he's just so like chill 
cease this. You know, like I, I love that. I agree with him that being patient is not inaction and having the sense to know when to sit back and let things play out is exactly what leaders have to do. I agree with you on the power play. That's an interesting way to say it. And all of season one, if you go back and just focus on Gina, she's always anticking behind the scenes. She's always whispering in ears. So she has a part to play as the, pretty much the shit stirrer, right? This is the time when Jimmy seems to have a little bit better grip on that and is a little more like, because if you remember in season one, it was the first time she, he realized that she talks to his henchmen, that she goes around behind his back and talks to his guys. And he was like, what? Like, you do that? And he didn't know that, and, and you know, until then. So I feel like he is starting to get his reins back a little and, and his eyes are more open to what Gina is doing. What do you think Gina's role is going to be in season two? The show has been set up desire versus the Baxters. As far as the war aspect of it goes, the, the criminal aspect of it goes, this episode is a breaking point because you're right. We, we saw her act behind the scenes. She's the one who comes in and says, we go big once. And that's what leads to the Jones family house being blown up. It's her without Jimmy knowing Jimmy is out of the loop that arranges for Carlo to be transferred from Angola to OPP specific and whispers in his air in his ear, which specifically that night leads to Kofi uh, being killed. Cause remember Kofi's going to get sprung in the morning, but go back and watch those episodes to listeners. Caroline had a great idea to rewatch the whole season. I've been doing it too. We highly suggest you guys do it. Cause there's a lot of stuff that just remembering who these characters are and really the machinations of the characters. It's her who plants the seed to get Kofi killed because the DA is going to come, we learn from Lee, and and drop the charges against Kofi. Kofi's going to be a free man if he could just make it to the morning. He does it. It's, it's she arranges for Carla there. Jimmy's out of the loop. Jimmy's out of the loop on all of these moves. I think that goes into, I think that moves from the background to the foreground in this season. I think that's going to be the big dilemma because it also sets it up where Michael maybe has a chance to ally himself in a real way with Jimmy and Fia versus Gina and Carla, which is an interesting tension. One of the other things that she was involved with is that she knew what Joey and Carla were doing concerning the drugs, and Jimmy did not. And she was like, oh, I won't let anyone bother you, son, like all that business. There's so much stuff that she was an enabler, you know, of Carlo that, you know, God, it just makes you shake your head when you see how Carlo interprets what she says and then the situations he gets himself into. Right. I mean, when when she says in that clip we just played, like, where's your urgency in this matter? And then she goes on to say, don't yell at him. He was trying to defend his family. The implication here is that Jimmy is not trying to protect the family. Oh, she uses the like manhood card all the time. Like basically you're not a man unless you're being violent and aggressive and making these big moves. And that's a dangerous game to play. Let's stay on this thread, though, because we see a softer side of Jimmy in this episode. We see him in the flashback right after Adam is killed. It's it's Jimmy who's really helping Fia where she's covered in Adam blood and guts to the room to lay her down. It's Jimmy who goes with Fia to Adam's candlelight vigil where she can't actually leave the flowers there. She actually she she can't be there. He does. And he prays and he crosses himself in front of the Adam vigil while Charlie Figaro is there and they make the eye contact. And it's then it's Jimmy and Fia who have this conversation, which I thought was one of the most eye opening things as far as where is season two going to go. I think this conversation is extremely important on what we've been talking about. Why did this happen? It's a senseless act of violence. 
Blizzard. I know violence is a part of this family. Carlo killed someone, mom, her family. I know what people think about them. I, I've heard the stories. They can't all be lies. They revel in it. But we're not like them, right? So how do you do what they do? We're not like them, right? Like a question. How do you do what they do? He doesn't answer. He just kind of stands. He His mouth makes a lot of movements, but he doesn't actually answer that question. This is setting up that dynamic. This is setting up you and me, dad, are different than mom and Carlo. Mom's side of the family, the Italian side of the family, is this <laughs> bloodlusty side of the family. We're not like that. How do you do what you do? And he doesn't have an answer for that. Are you surprised at how kind Jimmy comes off in this episode? Patient, sure. We've seen him be patient before. All season one was him being patient with Michael trying to get Carlo off. How he was protecting his family was being patient and working with Michael to rig the trial. But you, he was kind in this episode, I thought anyway. Were you surprised at that? He has that side. I, I think that, you know, moments like him... I rewatched this part where where he was brushing the hair off of Fia's face when she's first laying down. He's the one that covers her and he's the one that starts to wipe the blood a little bit too. Like there's a lot that that's going on in that tenderness. I think he has always shown that size. If you remember the gazpacho scene where he throws a big fit that they're having gazpacho and, and he actually commands Gina to go heat it up and she gets up and does it like but it's so tension filled because it's like is she gonna bend to his will and she does and then Fia and him just break down laughing because it's like watch as I flex on your mother basically so these two birds have had this type of relationship it was obviously you know the millionth time he'd done something like that in front of Fia because she was like why do you do shit like that to her you know like like he she sees it for what it is so they have a very very special bond that I actually think that he had with with Rocco too in, in my imagination that's how their relationship was he is actually very much a family man you know he does care about his kids very much probably more so than Gina in some ways which sounds a little crazy but she's very willing to put Carlo in in harm's way you know, like she's willing to send him down and and get him into whatever kind of gunfire in the lower ninth. Like she's OK with that. She doesn't send other guys in their group. You know, she wants to send her own son. And that's not what Jimmy would do. He doesn't send his own son. So you can feel that dynamic amongst them. I think Gina is concerned with the optics of strength yes. and versus looking weak. And I think she prioritizes that much more so over her family. And so Carlo being being a, a, a heavy, you know, a, a violence first kind of person is great for her scheme because, yeah, maybe he dies, but at least he dies looking strong. And I think that virile, right, that's what she's concerned about. She's concerned about those optics, the acting strong and appearing strong and, and not showing your belly to your enemies. Jimmy plays the long game. He's he's the big mo of this family, right? He's playing the long game maybe you would understand why i'm doing what i'm doing but i'm doing what i think is right in the long term for this family family again blood family and organizational family both of those at the same time because i think they're so intertwined i think this clip is really interesting especially when you combine it with the the patience clip that we played take those two together and listen to them it really sets up what i think is, is going to be this interesting dynamic going forward of of the baxter family split this season 
So now I'm going to ask you to do like a little exercise here and see if you and I can do this. Okay. Let's do a 180 on this. Let's defend Gina. Let's describe how she is being written as a strong female character Uh with a mind of her own, with her own plan and her own agenda. She is just as capable of being the matriarch of this family as anyone else. She is the big Mo of the family. And Jimmy is really the one kind of running around at her feet like a chicken with his head cut off what would you say to that like what could you say to defend gina and like that she is actually a well-developed character she's a very well-developed character i think she's a great mob boss i don't think she's a wonderful mother i think she's a great (laughs) mob boss i mean can you be both really a great mob boss and a great mom i don't know that's a really hard role well well, think about it i I mean i think if you ask if you ask gina is she is he a good father or a good good crime boss I, he's probably a better father than he is crime boss the way Gina sees it, right? Think back to like the Sopranos, right? And Tony Soprano, a big, strong, hulking guy, right? Head of the family. But it was really Livia Soprano that taught Tony everything that he was and made him who he was. Everyone feared Livia Soprano. And she was a, a super old woman when the Sopranos took over. But I always got the impression that she was the one everyone was really terrified of before she dies, right? I, I mean, strong, strong Italian women who dress in black all the fucking time. And Stand I know, in the she shadows. looks like Morticia, right? Like, every time she walks by, I think the two of them look like Gomez and Morticia. She looks like every one of my grandmother's friends from when I was growing up. <laughs> but I love it that she wears, like, the peplum, like, tops. So she wears, like, the pencil skirts and the peplum tops to where she has that shape that is so, like, Italian widowy. Very. I mean, <laughs> like, she always perfect. fixes herself, so you always see that ornate cross, you yeah. know, hanging. And her in. hair is so, like, just gothy looking to me. I don't know. There's a lot going on. Yeah, Hope Davis, uh, I mean, such good casting and plays the role, the role so well. She is the better crime boss. She is the one that you're really scared of. Like, I like Jimmy. Jimmy's actually my favorite character in the show because I like how even tempered he is. Uh, yes, he's, ex- he's extremely violent, but he also has this side of him where he can be kind to his family members. He does blame himself for Rocco's death, right? He's a, go back to season one. He talks about, he's talking to Frank. He's using Frank as a confessor. He's like, I'm the one who bought him the bike he's guilt-ridden over being the proximate cause of his son's death when he's staring at fia in season one i think it's episode nine you know they've brought the priest in earlier in that episode to try and convince her that her her love for adam is wrong kind of thing later that night he's staring at her in the study while she's reading and he's like how much do you love him how much do you love adam i want to meet him now like yeah. he's got that whole thing and i like that i'm 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 a very helicoptery dad i'm very involved in my kid's life and you know i identify with a lot of that but as far as mob bosses go i think i'd probably pick gina really i mean honest to god <laughs> i like that you i like that you identify because you're a helicopter dad and i'm like thinking like and i identify with jimmy and, and gina because i'm a badass bitch like, that's what I'm thinking. I'm not bringing in helicopter dad talk. I think a lot of the things that they're doing, I mean, they're both badass. So thank you for playing my exercise of now that we've said that Jimmy's so great and Gina's the nudge, let's switch it and say Gina is awesome and like far probably deserves the crown more than than Jimmy does. But we're stuck in this, you know, man's hierarchy. Although I love that Big Mo throws a big wrench in that idea. So that's all 
in testicles. She does. And I, but also, I think if you were to change their voices and maybe, you know, obscure their faces and you were to sit down all of the Baxter family crew, like all of the enforcers and all of the henchmen of the Baxter family and ask them, like, you know, which which one is the real brains <laughs> and, and puppet master of the Baxter family? I think in all of their modified voices, it would all be like, Judo Baxter is the one who is the modified. Yeah, she's the well, one who I- controls the strings. Or maybe even the question would be like, who would you be more scared of being called on the carpet by? A hundred percent. Or Jimmy. hundred <laughs> percent. And it's like, Jimmy's going to rip your balls off. Right. <laughs> but Gina's going to cut him off and eat him for dinner. This sandwich <laughs> like, doesn't have any more to tell, like, I'm a goal on it. I want to blow up your fucking house. That's Gina. I yeah, mean, that's, that's, the, that's Gina's character, you know? And you know what? I, some part of me, again, like I said, freaking loves it. Loves the, the cutthroat nature. And, you know, we get away from those cliches that she's not just going to be you know going back to your godfather slash sopranos reference she's not like the little woman at home she's not over there oh what am i gonna make for dinner like right. bullshit you know except for that gazpacho scene well, which is the key see he like thing, though, right? he'll like shove her back into this place and and like screw around with her like that you know why but I, we asked i feel like we even talked about this then like why does she actually do it why because the best puppet masters don't actually reveal themselves to be the one pulling the strings you need someone to be the face of the thing it's not the it's not the gina crime family it's the baxter crime family gina needs in for public perception for jimmy to be the face of the thing so that she can control strings and get things done the way she sees fit behind the scenes without unfettered right she's she's not right it's not the gina crime family it's the baxter crime family like i said so she needs to when there are people looking and there is a public audience she needs to go warm up the gazpacho she needs to genuflect a jimmy there and he knows that in private that conversation doesn't work out the way she goes tells him to go fuck himself oh, no, she totally pours the gazpacho in his lap and is like completely go fuck yourself and jimmy knows that that's why he could do it when there are people watching because she has to play that role so she doesn't tip her hand as being the one who's actually pulling the strings that's the genius of gina and and it's a great character the genius of gina. <laughs> and I'm, I'm excited to see these two continue to butt heads because we got a taste of it in a couple of things in season one the fact that we're having this conversation two different times you know uh, about the family as we're going through the flashbacks here really sets up if we're having this already in episode one or part 11 and we've got 10 episodes ago like we're gonna see this we're gonna see this uh them butting heads more and i'm excited for that so uh, we talked about how Jimmy makes eye contact with Charlie at the candlelight vigil for Adam outside, what I believe was the Baxter Hotel. Charlie goes from there. He gets into the car. He's got his pollster there. The election hasn't happened yet, right? This is pretty immediate aftermath after the shooting. You know, we get this whole idea that scared voters are not Charlie Figaro voters. Did this episode do anything? I think we both liked Charlie in season one. I think we both liked his kind of role that he played for Michael and for Adam. Did the aspect of him being a politician in this episode bother you at all? This idea of, I don't care if it's really Eugene or not, I just need to declare the city streets safe. This whole idea that the politics of it, the scared voters of all, you need to calm the city, affects how he acts in this episode. Did it, did it, did it change how you feel about Charlie at all? It did not because 
going back and doing my rewatch, they did a really great job of layering in all of his politics. So there was moments when the, he would be talking about his numbers, you know, like, oh, did you see what the polling numbers look like today, yesterday, those types of things. Or he would be, he would, he would often be saying things like, you know, vote for Figaro, like stuff like that. So it was always in there. It was always in there. And the only reason why I think it's more in our face is because the election is coming. Like it's any second, you know, we're, we were coming to the end of this whole campaign. So it makes sense that his character is going to be more, you know, all about being the politician than before, which is season one. It had a lot of friendship, friendship, friendship with politics layered in. But now it's the end of the campaign and it's got to be all politics. And that friendship part has been shaken. You know, like what, where is he in the friendship with Michael at this point? How about this? He he dedicates, you know, if he's elected mayor, he's going to dedicate his mayorship to Adam's memory. Is that a little too using the personal <laughs> for the politics? I want to keep liking Charlie, but I, I agree with everything you said. That line in particular is like, oh, Charlie, come on. Don't be smarmy. There's a way to do this without it's without just politics, though. I mean, it, it is just pulling on heartstrings. And I don't I mean, I don't actually have a problem with that. It is his godson. He did show legitimate concern and consistent concern about Adam throughout season one. They had several private conversations, him driving him home, him having lunch with him at a diner, all different things like that, where they had private conversations that the realistic nature that he would want to dedicate, you know, his term to this boy. It's not like he just showed up on the scene and he didn't even know this kid and then he was going to dedicate it. You know, I mean, it was his godson and he did have a relationship with him. So, you know, is it grandstanding? Absolutely. But is it is it backed? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he has a real relationship with the kid. Yeah. There's a great scene where because remember, it's actually Franny in the bar who accidentally lets it spill to Charlie that it was Adam who killed Rocco. Charlie goes to scare Franny off and drive her out of town just because of the the pedophilia of it all. Well, no, because Franny is leaning on Adam that she's going to basically cause trouble because of Fia. Like, she's all jealous and she's like, you know, really harassing Adam at this point. Right, right. But Charlie, remember, Adam and Charlie are in the diner and he says, I have two girlfriends. One of them is my teacher. He goes to he he goes there just to be like, you're a teacher. Like, just leave him alone. I, see, I think see, I just think that's a tactic. I think that's a tactic to run him off. But the reality of the situation is two women and one is like harassing him and he wants to move on to the other one. So, yeah, that's the that's the argument he uses with her. But I think even if they were to, you know, two peers, of, he still would have had an issue and like want to help. But the point being, it's actually in that conversation that he puts it together based on how Franny is talking about the accident, because she thinks that's what she what he's saying, like, I've got Adam, I'll take care of him. And she's got questions about the murder, the, the car accident, the bike accident. He has like a real stunned look on his face. But then that leads to a conversation on the steps with Michael, where he's basically like, why well, I, I would have been there for you why didn't you tell me he did seem this is my defense of charlie he did seem genuinely invested and emotional at adam's plight and and what michael was going through he was extremely loyal everything about charlie for me they did a really wonderful job of showing all the threads because he had such a wonderful really endearing relationship with elizabeth the mother-in-law senator elizabeth senator i Grandma, loved I think every her. single time they were together in the same room in the same space the way they would hug on each other and poke fun at each other and laugh with each other and all that stuff like it showed that he's a he is a true family friend you know it's not just 
he was a random person that was the godfather. When he shows up between at the meeting between Rudy, the cop, and Big Mo, where they're supposed to hand over Eugene, and they come up with a plan of just finding a replacement, you know, dead kid. Charlie's there, and he says he's there because he has an interest because of the Adam connection. And I believe him when he says that. There is also a politics thing here. So I just want to make sure Charlie doesn't start using family, friendship, and genuine family emotions for, for political gain. Oh, I think he's definitely going to. It would be actually, I would say it would be unrealistic that he doesn't. You know what I mean? Like, why wouldn't you? These these happenings, the death of Adam is a citywide catastrophe. True. You know, I mean, it happened right in the middle of everyone's faces. He's connected to that in a very real way. How in the world is he not using that? Like, it would seem weird if he didn't. Let's take go from Charlie to Nancy, because in episode 10, everyone and we talked about this, I think, in, in our finale podcast, everyone learns the truth about Michael. Either you think Michael killed Rocco or Adam killed Rocco, or depending on which version of the truth that you know, but the, the truth falls apart, unravels, or, or the concoctions, everything Michael goes through for the entirety of 10 episodes of season one unravels with just a little bit of tugging. That leads to Nancy and Charlie having a conversation upstairs in the courthouse, uh, you know, in episode 10, where basically he says, I'm going to be mayor in, I think, 10 days. I am giving you the entire support of the mayor's office to root out all corruption in in New Orleans police. You, I will give you the, the reign and the freedom and the support to root out corruption. She doesn't respond to him, but you get the impression she's going to take him up on that offer and not move on Michael. That was my takeaway anyway from watching episode 10 in a vacuum. We learn in this episode when she hears Michael was there when Adam was killed, she arrests Michael that night. She goes to the hospital and arrests him that night. Nancy, where, what's, what's Nancy's deal? Is she, what's her motivation here? What do you think her motivation is? I think in the case of Michael and the death of Adam, I think he would be a massive flight risk. Once Adam is dead, you could really, you know, put a case forward that he is going to just skip town and run away or whatever. So. Right. But if she's going to take Charlie's deal to just look the other way, it's already done. Look the other way. Don't, don't prosecute. Don't drop this as, as relates to Michael and Adam, because Adam is still alive at that point if she's going to take that deal what changes in hearing that adam's dead now and michael was there that she doesn't or maybe she was never going to take charlie's deal maybe maybe charlie's deal was on deaf ears yeah i would go that way that that it didn't it was not as persuasive as we thought let's listen to this clip this is uh the confession when nancy uh the judge and and rosie perez's olivia are in the judge's chambers listening to michael's confession let's play this clip right here where is he now? He's in custody. I picked him up at the hospital last night. Who's representing him? He waived counsel. Doesn't have any fight left in him. So why is the Justice Department here? This confession steps on a federal investigation. He's a judge who conspired with a mobster to corrupt a murder trial. How is that not enough for you? This is not just about one man. I want to eradicate an entire criminal organization for good, so I need you to bury his confession. What the hell is the point of solving crimes if we're just going to let the criminals walk free? Michael belongs in prison. Okay, then send him to prison for a tax evasion. But the transcripts must be filed under seal. 
He's no good to me if Baxter thinks he's a snitch. Let's review Nancy a little bit. Let's bring up some, let's review some things from season one about Nancy. She's the one who forces the affair that Adam be told about the affair, Robin's affair, right? She tells Senator Grandma, you have to tell Adam, or Senator Grandma takes away from her conversation with Nancy that she has to tell him about it. She's the one who says to Michael, you knew about the affair and you didn't tell us? It's Nancy who seems who says throughout season one, I kept looking into Robin's murder when everyone else dropped it. Nancy, very mixed personal and business in season one. Here we have her saying, Michael belongs in prison. My question for you is, is Nancy letting her personal feelings bleed into her professional work here? I would think that it would be impossible to keep them separate, especially the way that Michael used Nancy. You know, when you look at the way that he called her and was like, it has to be her and all the lies that he told her when they were talking about the car and, and standing like I'm thinking about them. But in the the like police station where they have the car, like the um, evidence lot. type space. Yeah. Where she is like talking about it and he's giving her all these reasons and all these things that have happened and how he put the, the keys on the tire, like the, all the details. Like, I don't know how it couldn't get personal if you are specific specifically asked for and then lied to so blatantly right? right like it would make you feel like he's picking me as like a mark you know like i'm the stupid one or he's so exploiting our relationship that i just i can't ignore it i agree with you and this is the karma right this is the karma discussion did you know question of did adam get karma at the end of season one you know no one wanted to see adam die but adam killed someone and through his own machinations and his more his father's machinations he avoided culpability for it and then he ends up dead and it's a question of justice but we never discussed about what was michael's karma writing right i think maybe if you had asked this at the end of season one after going through everything he went through all of the lies he told all the manipulations he told especially to nancy especially to lee who he was also sleeping with did adam's death did that write the karma wrong that michael had done because what else did he have to live for i mean this episode i think shows us he had nothing else to live for he's fully given up on life right she says it in that clip i couldn't play the confession part of the audio together with the back end of the audio because it would have made the clip too long but listen to the clip again guys go back and listen to it he sounds just like a dead robot when she says you know i picked him up at the hospital he waved counsel he's got no fight left in him you hear all of that right Brian Kretzer does a great job of just being lifeless in the audio tape as he's giving the confession. But she says it with a little bit of glee in her, though. She does. There's glee. There's a little bit of, like, got that son of a bitch. I picked him up at the hospital. He waved counsel. He's got no fight in him. There's a little bit of glee there on her part when she says she doesn't say Desiato. She doesn't say the perp. She does, It's Michael. Michael belongs in prison. It's very personal. And I think you ha we have to watch Nancy and how she behaves if once you're a cop and you're letting your personal feelings run your operation. I think we have to keep it on the board of is Nancy acting here because she's hurt at the lies and the manipulation, or is she being a cop executing her duties? 
See, I think that we saw a lot in season one that showed us she went above and beyond. I, I'm thinking of her sitting in the parking lot, watching Michael come out and taking a break, watching Jimmy Baxter standing outside his car, her having no problem continuously confronting the Baxters and, you know, in places like a parking lot or on the sidewalk or whatever and threatening them and all that stuff. All of that was really outside of her purview. She she didn't need to sit outside there and be doing those types of things. She's always shown to be going like, you know, to that next level. She had dinner at, at the Desiato house more than once, you know, in, in season one. That's not what a normal cop would be doing, you know. So they have this way more complex relationship. She's so invested in Robin's murder. Her heart has got to be just obliterated when she sees that Michael isn't someone that could be trusted. Here's the thing on Robin's murder, though. And this is one of the things I want to ask you about. I never got the impression, did Michael ask her to be so doggedly pursuing Robin's murder? I did not get the impression he did. I got the impression that this was, you know, a a contemporary of Nancy's and she saw some kinship there some for some reason where she really felt like she needed to figure out what happened to this woman you know that's what i was feeling was that she herself was very connected to the case and you know a lot of times when you have those very senseless murders those types where it's like this was just a female photographer walking around minding her biz in theory because we i'm this is one of our questions from season one like what was robin's real story but if you just take it on face value she's down there taking pictures and stuff like that how senseless is her murder that she's just killed outside yaya's you know how ridiculous how how ah so i think those types of murders tend to get cops you know like right where it hurts you know like you want to figure out for those really truly innocent people what in the world happened you know like rid the world of evil kind of feeling i I think they did a great job of establishing in season one that nancy doesn't like questions she doesn't like unanswered questions and she is dogged in her pursuit, whether that steps on family loyalty or friendship or whatever. I think she is going to pursue to the ends of the earth a question. And I think that is really maybe the explanation for not only everything she did in season one, but probably her behavior in this episode that we limited as we get to see it. But that clip I just played, I think that is just her dogged pursuit of the truth. And I think it offends her. And I think Michael offends her, not beyond the lies and the manipulation. The fact that he participated in and made worse crimes, not only Rocco's death, but the rigging of the trial, letting Carlo, you know, this piece of shit get off, rigging it. Like, I think it offends her. I think it offends her sensibilities at her core. And I like that about her. I like that she is a dogged cop pursuing the truth to all ends. There is an aspect, though, to it where I feel like, man, the guy's the guy's kid was just murdered, bled out in his arms. He is defeated. He looks like, you know, and she goes and does it in the hospital that night. It seems it, it, there's an aspect of it where it also seems very harsh, maybe justified, probably justified. But just hearing it and putting it together, what Michael went through just hours before, maybe not even fully hours before, seems very harsh. Both thing, I think both things are true. She's a dog like pursuer that. of the truth, but she also lacks maybe any compassion or empathy here. <laughs> well, you know, though, if you're Lee and you're Nancy, again, those are the two people 
people who he specifically called on the night that that he that all of this happened, those two women have a right to feel extra pissed at Michael, because even though he had his reasons, there's so much there that's like, had you told us what was really going on, we would have protected you. But you used us. You took advantage of us. You lied to us. You made fools of us. Think we're going to just let that go? I don't think so. He constantly tries to flatter her. He tr- he constantly he's he's trying to manipulate her far more than it actually works. It, whereas it works really lock, stock, and barrel with Lee. He, go back. He he is constantly complimenting her and 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 really trying to bugger her up. And Nancy, to her credit, is really oblivious to all of it, or not oblivious to it. She's resistant to all of it. She has the she's armor. She has a look on her face like ninety percent of the time that is just like. Like, I don't I don't need any of this shit today. I'm not doing any of this. Like, not today, Satan. None of this is happening today. I appreciate that. And I think if you are a female cop in New Orleans, you've got to be strong as hell. You know, you've got to be one of those people who can absolutely, like, set your jaw and freaking get the work done. Because th- it, it is a tough place that they're, that they're working in with gangs and organized crime and all this stuff. Like, Nancy's right in the middle of it. She should be strong and pissed. Right. Especially when you're dealing with so much corruption, right? Uh, how disappointing would it be to figure out that the one judge that you think is a good guy turns out to be part of the mess? I mean, disappointment is just it's, it's too like flaccid of a word. Like it would just your world would crumble as to like what you thought was the quote unquote justice system. Even Charlie is so disappointed when he says they yes. got to you. And yeah. Charlie, who is a much more man of the world, kind of like, you know, knows when palms need to be greased and, and when you need to then also have, then have morals, appreciating the gray of it all. Even he is taken aback when he puts it together and he says they got to you to Michael. There's there's disappointment and and sadness in his voice because Michael that's that's Michael's whole judgeship, right? They're, they're, go back to the early parts of season 1 where his boss is constantly berating him about how long he takes trials to make sure every nugget of truth comes out. The case that we see him work, right? The reason he's in the lower ninth the morning that Rocco is killed is because he knows a cop is lying and he's 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 proving it for himself that the cop that he knows the testimony cop is about to give can't possibly be true. Like Michael is presented to us as this stalwart of truth and justice and cannot be bought and cannot be corrupted, dot, 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 until his kid is implicated. Everyone's got a price. Michael's price is protecting Adam. I have to think that when you work in a profession where corruption is just right around the corner at every turn, when you have anyone around you, like you're like you're almost like walking shoulder to shoulder with anyone else who you think is on the up and up, that when somebody falls off like that, it's such like distress because it's like it makes you look at everyone else around you like, well, who else is the weak link? Like, who else did I not expect to fall? I think it would shake your world, you know, because... Because you're right, Michael Desiato was such a foundational judge in that whole courthouse in general, right? That everybody knew if you were there, you were going to get the fair trial. And do you remember how much Kofi's mom was just gushing over him and being like, you know, this is the guy, this is the guy who's making sure everything is okay. How horrible to have it be that he's the guy who, who crumbles. 
All right, let's let's jump into the future and hit to D block cell four one three. I gotta ask you, what were your first impressions when he rolls over like an old old man with that beard Oof. and so emaciated? What what were your first reactions? It looked tragic. I mean, when I saw him, I was like, oh my gosh. There was something even about just the smallest of body movements. I really appreciated the nuance of things like you could tell that it hurt to like uncurl his legs to like stand up. I I mean, that's hard to emote on a TV screen without being dramatic. And he did stuff like that. So subtle, so subtle. <laughs> I'm going to say so subtle all the way till the feeding tube, <laughs> where it was the least subtle scene I have ever seen. It was so dramatic and huge and disgusting and awful. I have two preemie girls who were in the NICU and had feeding tubes, and I was not present when they were put in. First of all, the feeding tube looked gigantic. Gigantic to me. I was like, why would they use such a huge tube? And then, you know, to be honest, again, my girls were preemies, so they were like less than a pound. So, you know, I've only seen a teeny, teeny, tiny feeding tube, but this one just looked like, like you could snake a toilet with it. <laughs> like, it was like, what the hell is this tube? That whole scene, Mike, was awful. So traumatic for me to have to like sit through that. And it really let you know where his mind was, that he would be willing to endure that type of behavior and still like hold his ground that he wasn't going to eat. Like, you know, I mean, wouldn't you just be like, I'll drink it. you know? And it's like, no, I, I mean, and then later him coughing up blood. Oh, he looked so absolutely just a shell of himself. I think that, you know, Brian Cranston, of course, we're going to just feel as is an amazing actor this entire series, I know. But these scenes when he's just so in like in his shell, oh, my God, it was all subtle and it was all very just sad. I, I mean, it was just it was like he may as well be dead. Right. You're just watching this corpse exist. When you watch the uh, previously on that starts the episode, you see him at the end when he runs and slides and cradles Adam as he's dying. Brian Cranston, you know, or Michael is so clean shaven and he's so in shape, too. Right. The whole thing about season one is he's training for a marathon. So he runs everywhere he runs the entirety of of new orleans constantly can i tell you something that really hit me on this rewatch okay and some of you guys are gonna remember this and some of you guys are gonna not do you guys remember that he explains to elizabeth that one of the things that he does on the final part of his run is that he he runs past parked cars and the amount of cars that he passes the amount of years that adam has to live before a moving car passes him and he like plays this game right so in that finale, when he has to physically run to where Adam is and you already have that setup of depending on how fast you run is how long Adam has to live and he doesn't make it to him. Oh, my little runner heart. (laughs) Because I play that same type of game with myself. Like I will be like, if I can run from here to the mailbox, then 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 this good thing will happen. Or if I can run from here to like I play those games, too, you know, to actually see it play out was was really impactful to me. I was like, wow, that Grand Slam home run for the writers. Comparing that clean shaven face that is in good shape, thin, but but strong and full of life and full of vigor to what we see here when he rolls over and the stiffness in his joint and how it's a it's an ordeal to even stand up but when he goes into the doc's office and they he's moving so slow the doc has his shirt like stripped open and the lack of patience at how long it's taking him to take his pants over like that stripping away literally of his kind of humanity and when he says we're not gonna let you die here it feels like a threat not kindness 
Oh, 100% yes. It feels like you're going to have to endure the, your punishment. You're not going to be able to cop out of this. Right. You read that on paper and a doctor saying it, you're like, oh, man, they're going to drew everything to save this guy. But yeah. no, in the practice of it, in the scene, in the context of it, it is, you're not going to have that easy, motherfucker. We're going to mm-hmm. force feed this down your throat. When the cold open ends back in his cell and his eyes are just rolled up in his head and kind of coughing and the blood is trickling out of his mouth. And that's how the cold open ends. And it goes to the title card. You said it perfectly. He is a husk. He is just a shell. There is no life left in him. When Nancy said all the fight is out of him, she was so underselling what he has become in his time in jail. The first thing to take note is that beard has to indicate, especially remember how clean shaven he is when Adam is killed, a a significant amount of time has, has elapsed even before this first prison scene with the doctor. But then we get the second prison scene uh, where the psychiatrist comes. He says, I'd like to explore the possibility that you can learn to live with it, talking about Michael's grief and the tremendous loss of Adam. Is your impression here, Mike, uh, Michael is suicidal? Is 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 that the right of it? Or is it broader than that? Then he's just, he doesn't care about living. He's not actively trying to die. Maybe he just doesn't care. He doesn't have a reason to live. I mean, there's a lot there, obviously, in what you're saying. I mean, I think that people who contemplate suicide, you know, that's all wrapped up in not feeling like you don't have a reason to live. So I don't, I don't think you can separate those two things. When it comes to Michael and you think about all he's endured, if Robin really did have an affair and then she gets murdered and then all this stuff happens with Adam and then despite everything and all this thing and people die along the way poor Trevor (laughs) R.I.P. to Trevor right there's people along the way who all on Kofi's family everybody right that when you get to this point and you realize that you could not save the day no matter what you did I don't even know if that's suicidal as much as it's just defeat you could not reach your goal. You could not keep everyone safe. There's something about that that doesn't, it doesn't feel necessarily like I, I like he wants to harm himself, but there's just such a, a absolute wind knocked out of you. How in the world do you keep going on? You know, after everything's gone and we all have to remember too, his career that basically defined him, your honor, if you will, is gone all of his friends and all of the people, all of the safety net, all those people who sat around him at that dinner table are gone for a variety of reasons. It's just, ugh, I, I don't know. Defeat is the word I want to say over suicidal. He just is so defeated. I think you have to take in the context of the whole episode, when you see the psychiatrist, when you see the the feeding tube scene, how uninterested he is, defeated definitely feels right. I think when you get to the prison rodeo, Well, there's two things here. One is there is a little spark of maybe there is life left in him. And and it's a very subtle moment. He's walking what seems to be just shuffling around in a circle in the prison yard during like what has to be their rec time. There's a crack in the wall where the sun is shining through and he stops and like turns his face to it. Turning your face to let the sun beat on your face and take that in is a very human thing for life. It's very, for me anyway, it's very much connected to feeling alive, letting the sun beat on your face and feeling those rays hit you. That's a small glimmer of, it's not hopeless. 
there's hope there. Someone who has no hope, someone who is a hundred percent suicidal doesn't stop to feel the sun on their face. They don't care, but he does stop and he does stop into taking that little bit of sun on his face. That's a little glimmer of hope. The problem is it's then that he sees the prison rodeo sign up sheet <laughs> right. and then signs up for convict <laughs> poker, which can only be there. Like the general, the, the older man, the older inmate says, what are you doing here? Judge, you right. know, like I'm here trying to raise money for my family so they don't starve. Like what you're going to die here. I think that's what I think that's what the plan is. I think he wants Malachi the bull to fucking kill him. Yeah, I think that is 100 percent. The goal is he just wants this to end. The feeding tube scene is awful and it and it, it, it truly is awful. But him laying on that bed and, you know, he's just replaying every single moment of his life and everything that has happened you know, he is torturing himself far better than anything they can do to him. And so the the more and more that he like does stuff like signs up for the rodeo, you're like, he's trying to find these outward ways to like release this tension, this pressure for him. He, he reminds, the rodeo reminds me more of people who do like cutting where it's like, you have to do something to feel to something. To feel alive. Yeah. And that's how I took it. Like not necessarily that he wanted the bull to kill him, not necessarily, but he just, he's so dead inside. He's so just, just nothing numbed out that the concept that I wouldn't even feel a bull, you know, like hit me feels realistic for him. Maybe. I mean, I mean, that goes with the taking a moment to feel sun on his face, right? Something to make me feel alive. Maybe, maybe this is what I need, but to get, take it together with the fact that the doc has said, we're not going to let you just die via starvation. You're not going to be able to, you know, food hunger strike yourself to we death. You don't get to check out that easily. Right. So, <laughs> you know, option B, Malachi the bull. The prison one's not going to let me die. So let me, this is, this is an alternative method to a swift and violent death. It's interesting. The, the man says, you know, what are you doing here, judge? And a little detail, and I thought it's a great deal, detail is as we, the camera zooms through the prison and we get to Michael's cell 413. It's an overcrowded prison, lots of people in all of the cells. Michael has a cell by himself which is an interesting little detail and they don't make any kind of comment on it, but he has no cellmate, right? We know from watching Kofi in prison, remember his cellmate uh, starts screaming in the middle of his sleep and everyone is screaming, punch him, punch him. him. You're his cellmate. You've got to hit him kind of thing. The judge, the judge is going to be in trouble. His life is going to be threatened if he has a cellmate potentially, right? He's, he's maybe put a lot of the people away that are in this prison. He sent them, he sent them here. So I like the little fact, little detail that he doesn't have a cellmate. I thought that was a nice little detail. Yeah, I agree with you. That That is a small detail that a lot of people would miss. And I think it's a really good thing to, to pay attention to. But then also the fact that the guy does call him judge, there's still like a little glimmer of respect. Yes. You know, like he doesn't call him douchebag or something. You know what I mean? He calls him judge. Like there's still some level of of like you are an honorable person i almost wonder if that twists it even harder to be called judge at that table given that you're wearing you know inmates clothes and everything else like would that just twist the knife a little bit in your side let's talk about the prison rodeo a little bit because i think a lot of people won't believe it's real (laughs) don't won't believe it's real right absolutely Uh, uh, will not believe it's real but in fact the prison rodeo is real the angola which is the the Louisiana State Penitentiary is is Angola. The Angola Prison Rodeo is in fact real. Has been running since 1965. Is the current oldest 
prison rodeo in the country. Texas had a prison rodeo that began in 1931, I believe, but stopped in the late 80s. I think maybe 1986 was the last year of the Texas prison rodeo. But Angola started in 65, only stopped in 2020 because of COVID. But guys, I can tell you, you can go get your tickets right now for at go to angolarodeo.com. You can go get your tickets. The spring rodeo is happening April 22nd and April 23rd of this year. Uh, wow. $20 per person. Children two years and under are free as long as they sit on your lap. Oh my God, two children yeah. and under yeah. at the prison rodeo? Yeah, yeah. the prison oh rodeo is 100% God. real. The angle, what we see on the screen is 100% a real thing that's happening. It's happening in April. Here are the schedule of events. Uh, you have <laughs> you have bust out. Six shoots open uh, simultaneously, releasing six angry bulls. One uh, with uh, an, an inmate cowboy. Inmate cowboy, that's how they refer to them on the website, is a temporarily attached to each bull. We actually see this clip when they're first starting the prison rodeo. We actually see this event. The last man to remain attached to their bull wins. You get bareback riding. Prison inmate cowboys are expected to keep one hand in the air and must stay on the horse for at least eight seconds to qualify. You have uh, barrel racing, which is the only event inmates do not participate in. This is a tour stop for the Girls Rodeo Association. You have chariot racing, which I'm not even going to read. You have wild cow milking. Teams of inmate cowboys chase the animals around the arena trying to extract a little milk. The first team to bring milk to the judge wins the prize. You have convict poker. This is what we see Michael and the old man and uh, the other guy who gets gored by the bull and lifelessly is dragged from the arena. Combat poker, the ultimate poker game, and even winning has a price. Four inmate cowboys sit at a table in the middle of the arena playing a friendly game of poker. Suddenly, a wild bull is released with the sole purpose of unseating the poker players. Last man standing or last man remaining seated is the winner. Guys, this is a real thing that happens. <laughs> How has this not been shut down? Now, it's raised for charity. It, it, the money goes towards buying educational and recreational things for the inmates. This seems like something out of a sick Roman Colosseum like thing. Why not just have tigers come and eat them? It's for charity. This is insane to me that this is a real thing. It, I, 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 I mean, I, I don't consider myself some heightened. I love how much you're like, ah, ah, ah. I, I looked it up on a whim thinking there's no way this could be real. I was fucking shocked to learn that the Angola prison rodeo is real and has been running for decades at this point. Angola, by the way, which is where Carlo Baxter was doing his time in season one. So. Okay, so I am in no way defending the concept of the prison rodeo. Okay, I want to be really clear about that, period. And also, <laughs> rodeo here in the South is a legitimate way to raise money and to like raise scholarship money and to have these athletes who come and they're, they're legitimate athletes who come and do all types of rope and ride and bull riding, all the good stuff. So I live in Texas. I've lived in Texas the majority of my life. And, you know, I go to rodeo most years. Not prison rodeo. Not prison rodeo, regular okay. rodeo. Yes, we have the Houston Livestock <laughs> Rodeo, which is the largest in the world. There is real harm, you know, that comes to both the people and, and the animals. And that's real. And that's entertainment for, for some people. For the most part, I enjoy things like 
mutton busting, which is when the little kids like put on the little helmet and they ride on the back of a sheep. And it's just a little tiny sheep. It's just a little baby sheep. It's very cute. And they just have to hold on for as long as they can hold on. They fall off too, though, just like the, the inmates. The little guys fall off too. And, and they're just little kids. They're not even trained little children. You could just volunteer out of the crowd like your five-year-old to go ride on the back of a sheep in the arena. As much as this sounds like super insane, and it is, there's also a lot of very normal people who do enjoy this aspect of watching cowboys show their skills. Because the idea is that each of the events are actually skills that cowboys need to use in their job. Like if you watch Yellowstone, you'll see them having to lasso an animal or having to take, um, you know, grab a, a horse that's going wild or something. Different things that are going on like that, that like those are real skills that have to be used in order to be able to do their jobs. And they're just showcasing them here in a more sort of like competitive athletic display. None of that stuff answers the whole concept of prisoners. The only good thing that I was happy for is you had to sign up for it. That seemed less insane to me because it's not like they were forced to do it because I thought at first they were going to be forced to do it when I saw some little clips. I was like, oh, please, they're just going to throw them there. That's gladiator days. But this is you sign up for it, right? Now, I guess the, the obvious argument is, well, but what choice do they have if they need money, like the man was saying, to feed their family and stuff? If these are the only opportunities they're given, then is that actually a choice? You know, is that actually a volunteer situation? No, because this is the only way to do it. All of that being said, of course, this was a really twisted version of a rodeo, okay? There's no there's no event in the real rodeo where people sit on chairs waiting for a bull to do this. Right. Like, none of that happens. Everybody needs to know that's not a real part of rodeo. And I hope I explained Well, it is enough. a real part of the Angola rodeo, though. You it can is go a, see no, it no, in no, April. But real rodeo. I'm <laughs> yes, saying yes, real yes, yes, rodeo, yes, okay? Yes, understood, like, understood. It's not a part of that. But, but so they've taken events and they've obviously twisted them up. It's important to me to differentiate because I don't want people to just take the word rodeo and say, like, that's all evil and awful. There's lots of kids who get scholarships from it, and that's how they go to college. So there is some good that comes of it. Not a prison rodeo. <laughs> Those I've, we all frown on. However, I've seen guys get hit by bulls. Like, have you seen this in person? I have not. Okay. One of these times you're going to have to come down to Texas. We'll take you to rodeo. When you see this stuff really happen in real life, it's terrifying, okay? Because these people are really getting hurt. And when you see, especially when the one guy was laying on his belly and the bull walked over him, my heart like leapt because those animals are so heavy and it would instantly crush like so much of your body. What we were seeing was actually pretty kind. When a bull hits you, I mean, we've seen men like- It's a one-ton beast that's we've angry. Seen them, uh, and you've, I mean, really, they get launched in the air. It's, it's far and it's scary. So there's a lot going on there. I'm sure this is going to be shocking for 90% of viewers because they won't have seen it. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, uh, I put I put a link to it in the Facebook group, in the discussion thread, in a dedicated discussion thread for this episode. They twisted and messed up what is a an actual sport. But the convict poker was actually interesting to me because because of Yellowstone, we actually see this this exact thing actually happens in Yellowstone, except for it's drunk cowboys playing poker and uh, they're 
there there is a lady cowboy hand in the bunkhouse, Avery, who kind of challenges their manhood. And so four guys go into take the poker table. They go into the ring at Yellowstone. And actually, Avery is the last one sitting, but it's the exact same rules. They're sitting around playing poker. They release a bull. The bull destroys the table. It destroys <laughs> cowboys run. They have the sense to not wait till they get gored. And Avery ends up being the one who wins in the cow drunk cowboy poker. But I want people to understand that it's yes, these are events that they sound pretty real, but this is a very twisted version of rodeo events. At the end of the scene, when he's laying there, not dead, whether that was his goal or not, but there is blood coming out of his mouth. Now, that's the second time we see blood coming out of his mouth. Once is after he's had a feeding tube forced down his throat. One is after a bull has thrown him in the air and launched him and he's landed body first. We have two instances where there is trauma to his mouth and throat, blood coming out of it. But I had to ask myself, and this is one of the things we have to put on the board, is there something wrong with Michael? Is it just coincidence of the injuries and those two moments that we see blood coming out of his mouth? Or is this indicative of something else not diagnosed or yet addressed in the show that is wrong with Michael that we have seen? Blood should not come out of your mouth. <laughs> Let's be clear. blood, Large amounts of blood should not drool, drool from your mouth. We see it twice in this episode. Second possibility. Maybe something's going on with Michael. That's bigger picture. I also want to point out that it it is a pretty amazing parallel to season one, episode one of Rocco. And I mean, remember the scene when Adam leans down to do uh, CPR and he barfs up all that blood comes out of his mouth. There's so much blood that comes out of his mouth. It's, it's horrifying. It gets all over Adam. So there's that parallel. And then, of course, when Adam passes too, blood out of his mouth everywhere. So there's something about sort of revisiting that scene, a, a scene of a man's face and blood is now coming out of Michael's mouth that I think is very poignant. I'm an assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Louisiana. Right. That was quick. I didn't authorize any visitors. Yeah. One of the perks of being a federal prosecutor, you know that. Right. You're going to talk to me, Michael. Whatever it is you want, the answer is no. Now, that's not any fun, is it? At least give me a shot. Now, I don't want to bore you with the modernity of my caseload, but suffice it to say, your relationship with the Baxter family intrigues me. I don't have a relationship with the Baxter family. Michael, I am offering you a chance to help bring down the single greatest threat to New Orleans, to atone for what you have done, to help the world be a little bit better, or you could do it for the same reason I do. I like chasing the bad guys. I can't help you. Let me worry about that. Okay. Then I won't help you. We'll see. I love that. We'll see. She knows all the trump cards she holds in her hands. <laughs> but what's your first impressions of Rosie Perez joining the show here as Olivia Delmont from New Jersey? I had only really known Rosie as sort of the super thick accent version of herself. And when she started speaking, she has this completely different demeanor that felt so fresh, like updated for her. For me, um, like her look in general, the way that they they styled her and just everything about her really 
the fact that it was Rosie Perez was almost like beside the point, like, you know, because she wasn't bringing that energy to me. I appreciated it because it really put me in a different mind space with her. And I liked her. I liked that she seemed fierce and she seemed like she just wasn't going to be pushed around at all by any of this business. We need those those characters in this show because there's so many strong, very opinionated characters that we need some people on the other side that are new that get brought in that make you feel like this this woman is not to be trifled with. Like we are going to see some actual action out of her. She is going to cause things to happen in the plot those characters are always exciting when they're introduced, right? Like you feel like this one is going to push the plot along. There's no question to her authority. This this is a woman when she's typing on her phone and we played the clip earlier. It's in the flashback with the confession. You know, she's typing on her phone and she's like, this confession steps on a federal investigation. I, I need it buried. She is not looking for permission. She's not looking for validation. She knows who she is. She knows what her job is. She knows what she's entitled to. And she's just going to fucking do it when she says, you know, one of the perks of being a federal prosecutor, you know, this like she's not fucking around she's not looking for him to play ball she's going to make him play ball i loved her here i thought she looked fantastic i know rosie perez most from white man can't jump uh in which i love her and i actually i really like that movie woody harrelson and uh wesley snipes but she's always a favorite of mine her character in that movie is studying to be go on jeopardy so she spends the whole movie studying trivia of the kind of things that they ask on Jeopardy. One of the categories that she becomes fluent in, and she eventually gets on Jeopardy, and this is a category, are uh, foods that start with the letter Q. She says, foods that start with the letter Q. I think about that all of the time. It, it's one of <laughs> the way she said it. it it's, it's so close to my upbringing and an accent that I'm so familiar with. When she says, you're going to talk to me, Michael, like, yes, it's yes. right. It could have been any number of people I knew from my youth <laughs> saying to me, like, you're going to talk to me, Michael. Like, it, oh, God, it really, I didn't even think about that. It was your own name. It really cut to me. <laughs> oh, like, funny. I was a fucking teenager again, hanging out with oh, Rosie, no. like very much, very familiar to me. And I loved it. I think she looks fantastic. There is an intensity. There's an intensity about her and a badass that's just rating it. We haven't really seen her do much. But in the scenes we saw with her, just the command, extremely impressive. I really like her. I really like the addition. I can't wait to see what she does in the show and the way she pulls the strings. Great, a great foil to Gina, another puppet puller, puppet string puller. Oh, very true. You know, and, and, and she's another example, though, of, of characters who are going to come in and create this, um, this constant, like taking, not taking advantage. That's not exactly the right word, but like, but using people and how Michael is absolutely going to have to play ball again and be used again. I mean, that alone would make me want to just be like, put me back in my cell. Because it's just the idea of like, hey, I'm here to put your strings back on and you become our marionette puppet again. Like, ah, you know, and she, Rosie Perez for me, this is an elevated performance for me. I, I know that her earlier works were like fun and cool and whatever, but there's something about this that feels like award worthy. Like I could see something yes. happening for her. Very award worthy. Uh, there, there's something about who she's playing here and, and how quickly she establishes it in that first conversation 
where she sits down. He's like, I don't want to talk to another psychiatrist. Like, I'm not, you know, I just let me die. And she's jokey. She's like, that's the way to start a conversation. Okay, I'll start. I'm from New Jersey. I'm a diehard Jets fan. You know, I'm a, you know, she's very playful, but then also has the switch where she's all business and no nonsense. And she like the, you find, you look down and there's a stiletto in your chest. I like people like that. I am drawn to people who can be joking and laughing with you and then just fucking taking you to the woodshed in it without you, without you even realizing the mood changed. I really am drawn to that kind of character. All of this worked for me when she comes back is even better because she says, he's like, I'm not going to help you. Uh, And she says, we'll see. She returns and she plays the Charlie card and she knows Michael. She knows people. I think that's the thing that comes across without them hammering you over the head. Whether she is a, a study of people or rather just Michael specifically, she knows what's going to motivate him. She knows he doesn't, is not going to do anything for herself. She even says like, you know, the bull got, you know, denied parole. She starts with a joke again. (laughs) She says, don't do it for me. Don't do it for you. Do it for Charlie. And she plays the tape where again, he says, all strung out he implicates charlie and she says i know if you were in your faculties you would never have implicated your friend the unspoken there is dot 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 but you were strung out and you did implicate your friend and so now i own you it's a great way of, of saying what it is without her having to say explicitly what it is this entire interaction was like a masterclass in writing, in acting, in in subtle moments between the two of them, you know, that are just really excellent television. It's the kind of stuff I love to see because you feel like there's intention behind everything and you like want to rip apart every word they say and exactly how they say it because it's all important. Let's talk about Michael and Michael is in prison. We go through this whole episode. We do hear in the confession part where Nancy is saying he he, he rigged a trial. He's a corrupt judge. He, Michael belongs in prison. She says, that's fine. Indict, indict him on tra- tax evasion. But whatever, the transcripts of the trial need to be sealed. He's no good to me if Baxter thinks he's a snitch. Right? That, that's the clip we played earlier. We never actually hear what happened to Michael that he's in prison. What did they actually try? him for? What did he get accused of? The Baxter family has so many informants and so many dirty cops. How did the trial proceed in such a way that Michael's real motivations for why he's going to jail were never revealed? Are we going to see that? It occurred to me at the end of the episode, we watched this whole hour episode, we don't actually know why he's in jail. We don't actually, we haven't seen it yet. Mm. It, a, a year has passed, we think. Are we going to get to see the trial? Do you think, do we need to see the trial? I don't need to see the trial because we saw the trial happen, meaning the trial of Carlo. And that's the trial that is why he's in prison. (laughs) Right. But Rosie's whole thing or Olivia Delmont's whole thing is I can't have it going out that he confessed that he snitched, that he worked with the Baxters. She needs she needs to preserve that Michael never turned on them. But the Baxters are going to know the judge has been in jail. I'm sure Jimmy knows that. So why does Jimmy think Michael is in jail? It's not going to be because he rigged a trial because that would reveal him as having snitched at some point that he did that. Okay, well, these are different questions. So these are different questions. One question you're asking is, what does the world think he's in jail for versus what is he in jail for? Right. We know gotcha. why he's in jail, right? The, the confession mm-hmm. is that that the question, the interesting question for the show is, what does Jimmy Baxter think Michael is in jail for? Are we going to find that out? 
that's a fair question and and especially fair because we could say or someone could argue well the baxters maybe they just like lost track of him blah 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 oh. right so, no i'm yeah. i'm not arguing that i'm saying some people could argue that right like whatever right. he's just out of their face but you have fia you have fia let's go back to that conversation writing these letters visiting him in prison you know like we have these moments where we know that the baxters are fully in with him and the other thing is if you had a judge on your payroll essentially uh i don't think you're losing track of that judge (laughs) you know i think you know exactly where that judge is located and whether or not that judge can continue to help you there's a whole lot going on there it's a very good question i think we should put it up on our bulletin board and and ask ourselves are we going to figure out like what it is that the public thinks that he's in jail for and what what exactly is going on and and people may also argue well livia says in there well whatever you do just the transcripts of the trial whatever it is have to be sealed fine well, how are they not already sealed, though? But if it's been a year, it makes you feel like it's like, well, but how long? Again, the Baxters, though, we know they have people on the payroll. They had a they had a judge working for them. They had Michael in the end working for them. So we know that they could probably get access to the transcript. So I'm curious what they actually say, because it's been a year now. Michael is still alive. He hasn't been killed in prison. And we know the Baxters are experts at getting people killed in prison. But Michael's still alive. So whatever he went to jail for, it couldn't have been for something that Jimmy is aware of that warrants him being dead. Right. Because you're right. They're not going to lose sight of him. They're not going to just be like, man, the the judge, he disappeared, whatever. I don't know where he is. No, they're going to know why he's in jail. And remember when when Jimmy towards the end of the trial in one of the clandestine meetings between Jimmy and Michael, he says, you've got a girlfriend, you got a dog, you got a son, you got a mother in law. What do all these people know? Essentially threatening even the dog. Everything is on the table. What do they know? Because he'll make them dead otherwise, right? So whatever Jimmy thinks Michael is in prison for can't be something that Michael thinks that Jimmy thinks Michael ratted him out. That's my guess. But I think I want to know. I think I want to know why Jimmy thinks Michael's in prison. I love that. Let's put it on the board. Were you surprised Fia shows up at the prison? Yes. Yes. I, I was like, why would you show up there? I think I was more surprised at the way he treated her, though. I think that, you know, him slamming the phone and walking off was so such a departure from the way that he tried to be so detail oriented as a judge and like and like sit there and listen to people and go through, you know, like all that kind of stuff. The fact that he had like zero patience and like walked off, that actually surprised me quite a bit. And I appreciated the actor's face like when he stood up and slammed them i mean her eyes were like boing like they were so big i was like excellent i'm curious is it lack of patience that he had with her or was it shame because when he sits down after he gets over the initial shock that she's there and he he looks at the guard who like like what what the fuck is happening here (laughs) he sits sideways to her caroline oh yeah he doesn't look in her face he can't look at her and it's not until she asks the question did adam love me that he's so dumbfounded by that question that he actually turns to her. He's sitting literally sideways in that little prison booth. It came off kind of almost like shame to me. Oh, I think shame. And I I, I mean, incredible hurt. I mean, he... Adam would not have been there if it wasn't for Fia. He wouldn't have been at the Baxter Hotel had it not been from this person sitting across from him. There's so much there that is just bringing up all the bad that, I'm, I mean, I'm sure just seeing her face would be enough to, to break him down. Did Adam love me? I don't know. There was a lot that 
that we didn't get a chance to talk about. He and I became very close. Maybe we can fill in some of the missing pieces. No. 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 I, I... I won't be able to help you. Look, I don't know if what Adam and I had was the real thing or if it just seems that way now because... Adam was a terrible liar. He didn't have that gift. So if he told you that he loved you, then it was true. Now, please, please, just stay away from me. Please, can you? And he literally like runs away. A couple of interesting things in there. He was a terrible, he was a terrible liar. He didn't have that gift. The implication there is that Michael sees himself as being a wonderful liar, right? He's implying that he didn't inherit the good liar gene. He is a terrible liar. So if he said that he loved you, he meant it, which again is a softness that given how that conversation starts where he's turned away from her is a kindness that I think he probably even surprised himself maybe that he gave to her. Yeah, I think or I'm going to say maybe it surprised him how much he revealed about himself and Adam. Like it, he did like kind of say a lot about the yeah. two of them and their relationship and all the things that, it, you know, wasn't it wasn't overt, but like you can read between the lines. Like you like you said, like you can understand what he's trying to tell her. I feel like she took him aback so hard that the entire conversation is had on his heels. Yeah, everything that he says feels raw and like untested like he just let it come out of his mouth before he even realized what he said now i mean we both have kids we both have sons that are teenagers i feel like they're someone who came to you and asked you did you know did your child love me that kind of thing I, there's some part of that that feels so invasive and private just like you you're not allowed to pick that scab of a parent who is dealing with the death of a child you know i i don't i think that like she crossed some sort of like societal line by mm. bringing it up and i feel like that's even what kind of like took him aback uh that's a good call because that, 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 it would to me i mean it, it, you know if and i know it would you too like i mean if yeah. you were just going about your day and someone came up and asked you that about your child who had passed it, I, I i think i think you would hit this part of the parent's heart that would just be like just stunned you know so in that line of thinking when she says i we got pretty close maybe we can fill in the pieces together she's essentially asking to have a relationship with michael via understanding who adam was and he shuts her down hard do you think it's that that lack of understanding him him having revealed that he and adam didn't know each other that well or he maybe he didn't in the end know who his son was well enough is that why he is so abrupt with no please stay away from me the scab of for all he did for adam and maybe he didn't actually have the relationship with his son that he thought and there there's this this girl here who maybe knew him better in the ways that mattered most at the very end those things run concurrent like the loss of a child would be something that would be so extreme that that alone could explain his behavior but when you add concurrently this other part of this hurt and and regret and resentment that his you know Adam's relationship with Fia is essentially what killed him in the end you know you'd have this like extra part of like I can't have you a part of my life because you were a part of this mix you know and I can't 
continuously come back to this story and try to unearth what Adam's real story was during that time. I didn't find Fia to be like thoughtless in that offer because no, I, I, I felt quite like the opposite. She, right, right. But some people I, I think could could think, you know, wow, that was a very impulsive thing to just say to somebody, you know, whatever. I wonder if she kind of thought that through. She was offering like a gift in many ways to Michael to be like, I understand you didn't really know what he was thinking in this last however long, six months, however long we want to say it was, a couple months. I can maybe shed some light on that. I appreciate that. But there's just no way he's ready to receive any of that information. You know, there's just so blank. I 100% agree with you. I think she's saying I am hurt and grieving over his loss. I have to imagine you're hurt and grieving over his loss. Let's heal together by talking about him. For some people is right. And and maybe for Michael at some point, that will be an option for him. But he's in prison. He's still raw. His life ended in so many ways that night at the Baxter Hotel when his son bled out on him. He's not even remotely close to, I want, I, I will heal my grief by talking to you, the only other person besides grandma, Senator Grandma, who, and Franny, and Charlie, the only other person, uh, you know, who, who intimately, <laughs> who, who intimately loved him at that moment. Yeah. But here's the thing. I think part of his face to her, part of his incredulous, you know, just like, what the hell are you talking about? Is like this idea of like, we're not walking down memory road. Like, like we can't do this. I can't do this. We're not going to heal. I'm never going to heal from this. So when you just kind of put forth the concept of healing or if she's trying to say like a, like a, let's have like a joint session. It, I felt like his response was almost as if she was like, let's have a say and bring Adam back. And like, he would look at her like, have you lost your fucking mind? <laughs> like, no. There's another aspect though, too, that we haven't even talked about is Michael is grieving the loss of his son who he loved very much, who killed Fia's brother. Fia is a young, is a young woman who loved a boy who killed her brother that she doesn't know that he killed her brother. How, how can they ever go down memory lane together? Because I think we have to have the assumption that even now, a year later, or, you know, uh, let's stop and, and timestamp this. She says, I've been writing to you every month. He's like, I know. And she holds up a stack of letters. I froze it. There's at least seven distinct envelopes in her hand, maybe eight. So even at the point of this conversation, he this is seven, eight months into him being in jail, if she really did write to him once a month. It feels like even seven, eight months on, she still doesn't know that Adam was the one that killed her brother, because you would have to think that would that would be damaging her still pining for him and still grieving for him. Well, it's it's fair to leave it on the table as like, does she know? What does she know? Right. How much does she know? Because, because her parents know. And the, But the confession tape was suppressed uh, so far as we understand. And so exactly what happened, we don't know what the public knows. And we don't know. Uh, I'm going to assume the Baxters didn't tell Fia. Right. So, but that's all assumptions. So at this point, we definitely just have to stick it up there to be like, mm, let's get clarification on that to figure out, does she she know or does she not know right but for for those that don't remember season one well gina and jimmy know it was adam 
they know because the asthma out, outside the courtroom mm-hmm. matches the sound, the wheezing sound on the tape, which is the recorded last sounds of Rocco. But it's actually what you're the wheezing you're hearing mostly is actually Adam. Mm-hmm. They know her parents know that Adam, Fia's boyfriend, is the one who was there and killed Rocco. So the question is, on the assumption, and I think it's the right assumption, is that they haven't told her. Why haven't they told her? Well, I think we have to get into a little guy that we see. It's a baby! (laughs) There's a baby. (laughs) We have to start talking about that little guy. The only assumption we can possibly make is that that little baby is Adam and Fia's. I don't think there's any other reasonable assumption. I don't think that she jumped into a relationship with somebody else no right away she's I don't still going think to the prison to see the dead guy dead boy's she's dad the letters well, like, she's, the letters. You know, she's not with someone else so far as we can tell she's obviously living alone it appears with the baby so i think we're looking at little adam jr there so yeah. this is huge this is something that we both did a rewatch we did not see or have any indication that they had slept together it was a big surprise to see that baby but it made a lot of sense. The only moment that I can see looking back that would give me any indicator that Fia might have known she was pregnant when Adam died was she was so hot on this idea all of a sudden out of the blue that they should take off in her little Volkswagen bug and just take off forever. Up just drive away. Yep. Drive away and go have this like lifelong adventure together forever. That could be had gotten a positive pregnancy test kind of conversation. I could see her not wanting to face her parents, not wanting to do anything. She's in high school. There's a lot going on here. We never saw them have sex. We, they never, they never showed it. They never it. even said like they, we took the next step. Right. They never implied they it in anything. any way. And that seems like a plot hole. That seems like something that should have been alluded to. So the question is, why didn't they do that? Now, the only defense I have for that, because I, I agree, I feel like that is something that the, the, you would think the show would have alluded to. I'm going to take you back to the end of episode nine and the beginning of episode 10. In episode nine, we know that Senator Grandma and her conversation with Nancy is that Senator Grandma is Elizabeth is going to tell Adam about his mother's affair. Episode 10 begins with a conversation with Adam sitting on the dock looking forlorn, looking at pictures of his parents. Elizabeth coming to the house and having a heated conversation about Michael that she told him about the affair. And they, they get into it. Did, you know, let's line up the kids and tell them that Santa Claus isn't real and, and all this kind of stuff. We don't see her say, have this momentous conversation with Adam. It happens off screen, which you and I in episode 10 last year talked about was an editing choice is a, is a particular editing choice, a big moment in the show for Adam and and what he thinks of his mother, especially given how vociferously against it Michael reacts. It's weird that we didn't get to see it. Also, we didn't get to see episode nine ends with uh, Fia and Jimmy having a conversation. How much do you love him? I love him a lot. I want to meet him. I want to meet him now. She texts Fia. We see Adam grab his phone. He gets a text message and he's leaving the house. The episode ends with Michael in his kitchen saying, okay, I'll wait up for you. We don't see that meeting. We don't see, we don't see presumably that night when Adam goes to Fia's house and meets Jimmy. We only see them together for the first time the next day at the hotel when Jimmy embraces him and hugs Adam. But we're we're meant to believe that he met him that night, and we don't see that on screen either. Why am I bringing up all this? Because the show has 
two big moments that it didn't show us on screen. It's not off the table or out of the blue that big moments in the show happen that they chose not to show us. That's an important pattern that you that you're pointing out is that there's there's plenty of times when they have chosen to edit things in a way that we're not going to see it on screen. You just have to assume. And that's why I point to that conversation with Fia saying, like, let's let's take off. Let's get out of here. That makes sense to me, you know, that she would be like, I can't face my parents. We're not facing your dad. Like, let's get the fuck out of here. Let me read into this even more in the conversation with Fia and Jimmy. She's laying on the couch. Jimmy is sitting in his armchair, staring at her, staring, just staring at her. And she's reading her book on the couch. She's laying down under a blanket. She has her hand on her stomach. Plenty of people, when they lay on a couch, will keep a hand on their stomach. But if you're pregnant, TV and film have taught us that one thing that that expectant mothers do largely subconsciously and not aware of it is keep a hand on their stomach. And women who are not pregnant tend not to caress their bellies. <laughs> right, but she's yeah, she's not caressing. She just has a hand there. But you know but what if, I mean. If you're like, looking for if you're looking for clues, yeah. you can you can find some. And I think the conversation, the out of the blue, let's leave this place. It very much can to be. To me, a, that feels like what because where would that come from? You know, like why would we do that? So I yeah I I appreciated all of that. And I think you're right on the patterns. And I'll be interested to see if they continue that in season two. My guess is they will, because these are like limited run. It's not like a 22 episode situation. If they have a lot to get through, they're going to have to pick and choose those moments. Let's talk to the baby twist, which I think is a bona fide twist. I don't think anyone really saw coming at the end of the episode. She is writing Michael a letter. It sounds like it's a final letter. And she starts it off by acknowledging that maybe she never knew who Adam was, which maybe is a hand tip that maybe at this point, point a year on maybe she does know about adam but she's choosing that rocco and her family she's choosing adam or her idea of adam and this baby over that but it also feels like a final letter and i'm curious the baby's cooing interrupts her i'm curious if she's going to reveal in that letter the baby if that if the point of that letter which does sound like a final letter to him you know i've tried to reach i've tried to reach out to you you're you know you don't want to hear me but here it is i'm curious if she continues that letter we get to hear it narrated does she tell him about the baby to me i think that she was writing about it the whole time i mean he didn't read the letters so i i don't think the reveal is in that final letter i think you're right that that final letter is probably a goodbye and like a you know i would have wanted you to be a part of the baby's life kind of thing or something but I think that the letters all along, because of the monthly nature, doesn't that seem to coincide very much with pregnancy? True. And like some feeling of like, this is what happened this month and here's what's going on kind of feel. She's sitting when she arrives at that prison meeting. We don't get to see she based on the timeline when they were thinking if it's eight, seven, eight, maybe nine months. She's probably pre- pregnant in that scene. Oh, when, yes. and but we never see her stand up she doesn't get to that point he run literally runs away from the conversation maybe she's going to stand up there and show that she's got a big pregnant belly or, or, or something the conversation never is allowed to germinate that far it's never allowed to bloom i have a theory can i give you my theory yeah. about the baby and why the baby is important sure we talked about in this episode a bunch about how michael has no reason to live maybe he's not out and out suicidal but certainly is lost the spark to live the 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 husk this baby being fia and adam's baby will be the spark for his reason to live beyond protecting charlie the idea of being a grandfather because i think character trait wise even more than Michael being this stalwart of justice and truth that he's supposed to be as a judge, as your honor. I think season one 
character trait wise shows most Michael's biggest driving force is protect his son right or wrong handled right or wrong and lord knows he made so many mistakes in trying to protect adam i don't think you could fault him for the intention of trying to protect adam and keep him alive that is a strong character trait which a baxter baby shared where the father is the murderer of his the baby's uncle (laughs) is a strong motivator to someone like michael to spring him and to give him a reason to live I 100% think that that is correct. And that will be the motivation because it's just, it's really the natural progression from protecting your son to protecting your grandson. And you had to create that some sort of reason, like he has to have a reason and it can't just be because we're going to twist your arm behind your back. Like there has to be something other than just some free will aspect to him being out. Yeah. You don't just want it to be, um, you know, because we're going to punish you or hurt you more or do something, you know, like you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I know people would say, well, the motivation is 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 Charlie and protecting Charlie. But I think the baby is way better, more compelling. Protecting Charlie is as as a puppet on the strings for Olivia and the federal prosecution. Protecting Fia and the baby, or protecting the baby and Fia by extension. And the Baxters in general. Well, protecting. Let's let's just stay to protecting his son's baby is something of free will, right? It's a reason for him to, it's a reason for him to live. It's a thing for him to do where he's in control, right? Because Olivia maybe doesn't even know about the baby or doesn't know about the fact that Michael's son is the father of that baby. So he will get to do that and have an, an amount of control over his life. And free will and making your own choices is a huge aspect of wanting to live, right? If you're only living because you're under someone's thumb, well, that gets old real quick. But the idea that he can choose to be he a protector. He can just off himself. That's the thing. Like right. he can just he can just kill himself and take himself out of the equation. If he has the pull that he has to stay in the game in order to protect someone, that's a different feeling altogether. He can't check out. Do you think Jimmy knew that she visited him in prison? No. I don't think so. I can't as imagine as, that was sanctioned, right? Nah, nah. I think that's part of even why she's so shocked that he shuts her down so fast. Because because I feel like some part of your heart would be like, or even your brain, whatever, would be like, you know, like, I'm the one taking so much risk to be sitting here talking to you. You know, like, what what do you think, every, you know, everyone in my life would think? And I'm here, like, I'm making this offer and you're just walking off like, like this is bullshit, you know? Let's get to the very end of the episode. So, uh, you know, Michael walks out of the gates, cell phone he doesn't even know he has begins to ring. You know, the the only conversation is, you made a good decision, Michael. I'll be in touch. That's Olivia. There's a moment where Michael, Brian Cranston, turns as the gates are closing behind him. He looks over his shoulder. And it's it's a great little moment because there's this fleeting aspect of, I should not have walked out of these fucking gates. Right. I'd be safer to be in there. I just want to, I just want to go back there and die. Like... A man, a man who is the judge, the height of his profession and a stalwart in his community. Just the the look over his shoulder is, I am safe in there. At least, at least I know what I'm getting inside those prison walls. It's a great little moment. I just wanted to call attention to it because I thought it was a nice little bit of acting. So 
I also thought that the the moment of uh, punctuating the fact that every other inmate had family that met them at the gates and he walked alone and had really nowhere to go and just walked with his little paper sack like he had nothing. I mean, that's important because it makes that baby that much more important because he literally has no one. And this baby represents like any shot at having family ever again. A little raison d'etre. A reason to be. That is what there we're all go. searching for in this world. Uh, as we finish up here, this mega conversation, which is now run over two hours, I just want to I want to go back to season one real quick. Let's talk about some holdover questions, things yes, that we please. things that we didn't maybe consider ourselves as season one ended because we thought the show was over. Well, we did have a moment where we were like, wait, 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 we didn't get to find out all this stuff. And we did have a lot of questions. And there's there's plenty of questions. Let, let's uh, let's run down some of them as as we think about where we're going to go in season two. We have Franny. This is this is Adam's super loose end Franny, super loose end Franny. This is the photography teacher that was in love with Adam. Adam was in love with her until Fia came along. She knows about Adam. She knows about the murder. She was chased out of town by Charlie. Will she be back? Super loose thread. Do you okay, want her to be back? Do, does that feel like a does that feel like a thread that needs to be addressed? If she doesn't show up, does it feel like the ball was dropped if we don't see her again? I don't think so because I think that she really. I mean, what? Who would be like in trouble when it has to do with Franny? Really, at the end of the day, because everybody's dead. You know, I mean, Adam's gone. There's not. There's really their relationship is like what? You know, like who cares? You know, like I don't know. I don't need her to come back in order for there to be you know more excitement with that whole storyline. How about Robin's affair with the Desire member, though, or whomever that person is? Like, how much do we want to know about, like, what happened with Robin? And who the hell was Robin? Do we need to know that? What do we know? What happened with her? Those pictures that we saw with the red barn or whatever it said on the hat. Like, there's so many questions that I have. Right, yeah, it was something, I don't. I think, I, I think like it was that. a red hat that said Barnstar on it, but yeah, but it it's totally, the guy who's in the pictures covering his face. Star, you know that it probably says porn star. It's Barnstar. the guy who's wearing a he's wearing a hat, blocking his face in the picture. But then, if you go back in the, in the scene where Nancy is staring at these pictures intensely, she blows it up. There's a picture of Robin setting up a camera in a reflection of her, and then on the hotel bed is that hat and glasses. So the the intimation is that the affair she was having is with the member of Desire. So, yeah, super want to know about that. That feels like a loose end that's important to Michael's story. Uh, and who murdered her seems important to Michael's story. I think so. I think so. I'm looking back on it now, having rewatched the episodes and having a lot of distance between it. Michael doesn't give a shit about it, honestly. He really doesn't seem very concerned about who murdered his wife at all, which makes me think he knows who murdered his wife. Or why. I don't think he had a hand in it, but I think he knows. That's a very bold prediction to, to say that. But at the same time, you're right. He doesn't have the what we would assume would be the very natural questions. Right. He never seems to bring that stuff up. Right. And he never seems to have the same level of urgency as anyone around him right. about what happened to Robin or where she went. Like, you're what are you, right. Gina? That there's, Where's your there's sense of urgency? <laughs> he's, he seems very resigned, though. And that, that type of stuff doesn't happen if you don't have some answers. So, I agree with you. There seems to be something there. I mean, we talked about a lot of the fear things, the question of why hasn't the family said anything? I think you're right. I think it's the baby. I'm curious, where is Lee? 
right? There's a scene in this where we didn't really talk too much about Eugene and Little Man when he was on the run, but one of the things he does is he calls her and goes to where she lives and she doesn't pick up the phone. If we get her machine, she's not in her apartment. And, and that's the moment when he gets snatched and brought back to, to Big Mo and gets put in the, in the container to, to sweat out his interrogation. But he goes to Lee's house. Lee still exists in this world, but she's not in this episode. Is she coming back? Cause that's another Michael Loose end. Where's she been the last year? Did she put on her pro bono public defender hat and, and, and go to bat for him in his trial? I doubt it. I hope to see Senator Grandma come back. I want to get some information more about her. She was a cool character. And obviously, you know, if we're going to start talking about having like these like federal level cases, I think that you have to bring in some like bigger world, right? And so if we can kind of, you know, bring into Senator Grandma's world, she, she's kind of like the outside New Orleans voice where you get like somebody to talk a little bit more about what's going on big picture. I hope we get more of her. The last thing for me on my on the list is Nancy and Nancy's relationship with Charlie. Right? Presumably Nancy and Michael are going to run into each other out of prison and and I'm I'm definitely looking forward to that. But the relationship between Nancy and Charlie is interesting because remember, Charlie presumably mayor now made a deal. The last conversation we see with him and Nancy is he's basically bribing her. I'm going to give you what you want to clean up the police force if you leave Michael alone. She arrests Michael, presumably taking that support off the table, maybe putting her at odds with Charlie. She knows the kind of person Charlie is that he's willing to wheel and deal and make these kinds of offers that she rejected. We see her in the crowd when Charlie, with corrupt Rudy next to him, is declaring the seat the street safe. My member, my mayorship will be dedicated to Adam. Uh, the threat is gone. We're all safe. Nancy's in the crowd. She got her arms crossed, looking very incredulous, looking very like you're full of bullshit. I'm curious, is is Nancy now going to turn her dogged sights on Charlie and his administration? I think that could be very interesting. Everything that Charlie's doing is 100% going to be at odds with whatever Michael's going to be asked to do. It really puts them in a position of no longer having that friendship, which is going to be a huge bummer because that was something that was actually really refreshing to me was anytime when you had Charlie be able to talk with Michael and have some of that sort of like behind the scenes conversation because he was like one of the few people that Michael could actually tell some of it to and have that buddy. I mean, Michael is just an island at this point. So I'm going to really miss that. I, I hope that they find a way to be able to interact with each other, basically. Another island really is desire. Eugene being dead, quote unquote dead. The word gets back to the Baxters. Presumably this squashes the beef, right? You handle your boy. I'll handle mine. Now, maybe Gina and Carlo aren't satisfied by this, but their immediate target has now been eliminated as far as they know. So what happens to Desire now? I mean, season one, Desire was mixed into the Baxters and into Michael's story because of Kofi, because the role that that played in the entire story. We have to keep them in the story. I don't think we're getting rid of Big Mo and Little Mo and Desire. We have the connection to Robin, so maybe we're going to explore that more. But I'm curious if if we have avoided war and confrontation between the Baxter family and Desire. No, that doesn't feel right. <laughs> it doesn't feel right. It feels like war is still impending. Big Mo and the Desire crew as much as they were talked about, we actually didn't see them in action. Like, what exactly does the Desire crew do and who are the different members and and what exactly are they all apart? We we got, they were very background when you think about it. We talked to Big Mo a lot, who was talking to Jimmy a lot. But 
what the crew was busy doing was not the focus. So I could imagine spending a little bit of time exploring what Big Mo's operation really is all about. Yeah, it was always very periphery. I mean, obviously they deal drugs. We saw the episode when they're looking for Eugene where they get a notice of a raid and they stash the drugs real quick in the wall and stuff like so we we know their drugs and stuff, but like what is their reach? They're clearly on the radar of the Baxter family. Clearly they control the lower ninth war. Where do they go from there? Big Mo is a businesswoman. She's looking to grow her empire. How will she grow it? That will be fascinating. I hope that season two is about her growing it and about a sort of getting, you know, bringing in some of those characters. There was a lot of characters when you think about like Lil Mo that were there and they were present, but we really haven't explored very much with them. And they could be, you know, really good parts of season two. Uh, You want to hear a little fun trivia fact that I never noted, but I noticed on my rewatch. Do you know what Lil Lil Moe's real name is? Lil Moe's real name. Oh, I feel like I saw it on the screen. Mm, Lee reveals it. She's doing a search for it. I can see her typing it. I can see her in that conference room. I can see it. Trey Morrow. T-R-E-Y Trey Morrow. M-O-R-R-O-W. There goes the Mo. So... There go the Mo. There go the Mo. Trey Morrow. So that's funny. That's funny. Very cool. Very cool. Well, that implies actually that there's a that there's a Mo above Big Mo because Trey is typically the third. Oh, fun, fun. But maybe, maybe no longer. Right? It doesn't look like Big Mo has a. Wouldn't it be funny if there was like a a bigger Mo that somebody has to do? Little Mo, Big Mo, biggest Mo, biggest Mo. There you go. Yeah. There's our superlatives when you need them. That's it. All the most. Oh, that's so funny. You guys, this has been so fun to get back with these characters and get an opportunity to try to decide like what is going to happen and how fun in a world that we're living in right now when shows that we love maybe even have their full production already in the can and we're not getting a chance to see them or we're getting our favorite shows like Westworld getting pulled off of streaming services. How wonderful is it that this surprise season two has dropped in our lap and we actually get a chance to see some of our old pals back on our screen. I love that. Showtime showing loyalty to their shows. I feel like we're going to be forced into covering Yellow Jackets uh, just so uh, that we have shows Yellow to cover. Jackets was awesome. So I would happily cover that with you. It's it's on my to-do list. It's on my, my, <laughs> my shame pile of things I haven't watched yet. Shame pile. So. I love it. Well, we all got to get back to our shame piles, Mike. So this is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's, your dedicated after-show podcast for Showtime series, Your Honor. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five-star review, we'd really appreciate it. Helps promote the show, helps other people find it, increases the community talking about Your Honor. Maybe we can eke out a season three if uh, if all goes well. Hopefully you do that for us. If we like your review, we'll read it on the air. And uh, I'm just going to leave you with this little uh, bone mot so you can think about it. If it was a fifth, we'd all be fucking drunk. Preach, Big Mo. <laughs> preach. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.